Good afternoon. Welcome to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, Land Use and Economic Development Committee. Uh, I'm Scott Weiner, the chair of the committee. To my right is Supervisor Jane Kim, our committee vice chair. And to my left is Supervisor Malia Cohen. Our clerk is Andrea Osbury, and I want to thank SFGTV for broadcasting today's hearing, specifically Jonathan Gomwalk and Jennifer Lowe. Uh, Madam Clerk, are there any announcements? Yes, please sound all electronic devices. Completed speaker cards and copies of any documents to be included as part of file should be submitted to the clerk. Items acted upon today will appear on the October 21st, 2014 Board of Supervisors <clears throat> agenda unless otherwise stated. Uh, thank you. Uh, Madam Clerk, will you please call item number one? Item number one is the ordinance amending the administrative code to include better street policies and city transportation planning and design projects and programs. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm the author of item number one, uh, which is an ordinance uh, that will adopt the National Association of City Transportation Officials Urban Street Design Guide and Urban Bikeway Design Guide uh, as uh, part of our official city policy in terms of street design. Uh, this is in a continuing effort to uh, improve street design standards in San Francisco, uh, to improve street safety for all users, and to recognize that we are a multimodal city and a transit first city, and our official policies and ordinances uh, need to uh, uh, reflect that. Um, the National Association of City Transportation Officials, also known as NACDO, is a nonprofit association that represents large cities on transportation issues of local, regional, and national significance. Uh, it advances the special and unique interests of urban areas. Uh, all too often, uh, blanket standards get issued that are very suburban or even rural oriented, and NACTO represents the interests um, of urban residents in terms of good transportation design policies. San Francisco, New York, Portland, Seattle, and Washington, D.C., for example, are all members of NACTO. And in fact, the current president of NACTO is our very own director of transportation, Ed Riskin, and this year's NACTO conference uh, is being held here in San Francisco at the end of this month. Urban environments like San Francisco have particular and unique challenges when it comes to designing safe streets. While, while we've learned quite a bit in the last few years, uh, unfortunately, San Francisco still suffers from some very bad road design decisions made in the 1950s that have made many of our streets dangerous for pedestrians and cyclists, uh, encouraging speeding and uh, uh, helping fuel uh, our epidemic of injuries on our roads. Uh, thankfully, we as a city have repeatedly affirmed our commitment to do all that we can to end what has become uh, a major problem with uh, particularly pedestrian accidents on our streets or pedestrian collisions on our streets. Uh, great work is happening to implement near and long-term improvements uh, uh, with our goal of reaching uh, no uh, pedestrian deaths on our street, Vision Zero. Uh, we have to make sure that we're doing everything we can to prevent uh, these kinds of deaths and injuries and to make our streets as safe as possible. Uh, we know that it's about the three E's, education, enforcement, and engineering. Uh, and this legislation addresses the third E, engineering, by adopting best practices in urban street design with a primary goal of making streets safer for everyone. Uh, specifically, uh, uh, Administrative Code Section 98.1 is uh, San Francisco's better streets policy, establishing the city's approach to designing streets and sidewalks. The Better Streets Plan, uh, which is implementing the implementing document for the Better Street Policy, establishes suggested minimum sidewalk widths, suggests improvements for enhancing pedestrian safety, 
as well as enhancements that support our natural environment, such as stormwater recapture. The legislation before us today extends the Better Streets policy to include the entire street cross-section from building face to building face, including sidewalks, travel lanes, bike lanes, and intersections, by adopting the NACTO uh, Urban Street Design Guide and the NACTO Urban Bikeway Design Guide as official policy for our city for all city departments. Uh, these guides will, will establish a policy guideline for how best to design our streets to be safe for all users and will require yearly reporting. Uh, the policy will guide all future street projects. Uh, I want to note that the SFMTA Board of Directors has already adopted NACTO as official policy for the MTA. Uh, our adoption here today will extend uh, these guidelines to each and every city department because we know that various city departments are involved in street design. Um, Ed Riskin, had, as the president of NACTO, had uh, hoped to be here today. He's out of town. Uh, but we have Darby Watson from the SFMTA Livable Streets uh, Division who is here to say a few words about this legislation. Ms. Watson. Thank you, Chair Weiner and members of the committee. My name is Darby Watson, and it's my job to make San Francisco streets and sidewalks safe for everyone who wants to walk and ride a bicycle. I'm a section leader with Livable Streets at SFMTA, and I'm here today to share with you our experience with the NACTO guidelines. My staff and I have been lucky enough to participate on both the steering committees and in working groups for both of these guides. These guidelines help to fill a significant gap between the manual for uniform traffic control devices and the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials engineering standards, giving us the toolbox and the tactics to make streets safer, more livable, and more economically vibrant. Both guides have been fully vetted through a peer-to-peer -peer working group of city engineers and planners sharing and developing these guidelines specific to urban places. Thank you for bringing forward this legislation, and the SFMTA supports this legislation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, colleagues, are there any questions for the MTA? Okay, terrific. Um, and I do want to note that after, uh, after public comment, there is uh, three technical amendments. Um, they're all I identical amendments uh, in describing uh, the uh, NACTO uh, uh, bikeway design guide. It's actually 2014, not 2013. And so in three places, page 1, line 21, uh, page 6, line 10, and page 7, line 3, will simply be replacing 2013 with 2014. Uh, I believe that those are um, non-substantive amendments, so we'll be able to act on the item uh, today. So with that, uh, is there any public comment on item number 1? If so, please come forward. Ms. Schneider. Good afternoon, committee members. My name is Nicole Schneider, and I'm the executive director of Walk San Francisco. And I wanted to express our strong support for this legislation. As we know, MTA is one of the major players that touches our street, but many city agencies um, touch our street. And I know many of you um, and the, the whole board of supervisors has endorsed Vision Zero, which is a goal to make our streets safer and eliminate traffic fatalities in 10 years. Um, and Vision Zero really isn't rocket science. We have the tools to make our streets safer, and engineering is really our main tool. And the NACTO Urban Street Design Guide and the Bikeway Design Guidelines really help bring those innovative concepts and proven um, safety concepts um, to, our, to our urban streets, and we, we wholeheartedly support them. 
Um, and I believe you know engineering is the most important because it naturally educates every user of the street on whether they need to slow down, um, where they need to stop, and when it's their turn to proceed. So um, thank you so much for moving this legislation forward, and uh, we look forward to seeing it at the full board. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment on item number one? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Okay. Uh, colleagues, um, could we first adopt the um, uh, amendments that I described? I will move those amendments. Okay. And can we take that without objection? Okay. The amendments without objection are adopted. And uh, could I have a motion to forward item one to the full board with positive recommendation as a committee report? So move. Okay, and without objection, that will be the order. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Madam Clerk, uh, will you now please call, we're going to go a little out of order, can you please call item number six? Item number six is an ordinance amending the planning code to permit arcades in the 8th Street Neighborhood Commercial District. Okay, we uh, this is in our, our we have a whole series going of arcade-related legislation um, by uh, Supervisor Breed's office and my office, and I think we actually are going to have one more after this that I uh, introduced uh, recently, and then I think we'll be done and the world will be safe for arcade games. Um, but today's uh, legislation is authored uh, by Supervisor Breed with me as co-sponsor, and uh, um, we have Supervisor Breed's office here today, Connor Johnson. Thank you, Chair Weiner. It is a privilege to be here again to address the committee about uh, arcade games. This, is, this has been a lot of arcade games in the last few months. Uh, if you recall, our file uh, 140776 amended the police code in a variety of ways to allow arcades in NCDs and to make the restrictions on arcades less restrictive than they were in 1982 when that police code was originally written. Uh, that legislation was sponsored by Supervisor Weiner and I believe Supervisor Kim as well. It passed the board unanimously. It was supported by the Entertainment Commission, the Small Business Commission, the Police Department. Uh, and as I mentioned, it lessened the restrictions on arcades in NCDs under the police code citywide, but we are still left with an element in the planning code that prevents arcades from going into the hate NCD. And that is an issue for Supervisor Breed because we have an existing arcade in the upper hate uh, that she wants to see allowed to continue in the district. So this is just sort of a legacy planning provision that we had to clean up and did it as a separate piece of legislation. Uh, so it is certainly in keeping with the police code legislation that already passed, and it's just specific to the hate NCD. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Okay, terrific. Um, colleagues, any questions about item number uh, six? Okay, seeing none. Uh, we will open item six up for public comment. Is there any public comment on item six? Please come forward. Uh, good afternoon, Swazza Scavina, Swazza Jane Kim, Swazza Mary Cohan. Yesterday, I did not go to the uh, Sumo uh, Western Champion uh, uh, show because some other engagement. As, uh, I think uh, uh, good advice for Supervisor, you have to gather everything good to yourself. Everything you don't like, just reject them. Uh, thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment on item six? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Supervisor Kim? Um, I'm happy to move this forward um, with recommendation. Um, and I just wanted to add my name as a co-sponsor as well. Okay. Um, any, 
so the motion is to move item six forward to the full board with positive recommendation and we will take that motion without objection thank you okay um, we I think we're going to have to take about a five minute recess um, we've been a couple of the items I think we're gonna delay and we're gonna do the water hearing next and I think the uh, PUC is going to be here momentarily um, so why don't we just go into a very very uh, brief recess until the PUC uh, arrives and then we will start uh, item number three at that point hearing on water usage in San Francisco uh, so we are now uh, in a very brief recess Okay, that was a three-minute recess. 
was brief as promised. Uh, I have, so we're reconvening the Land Use and Economic Development Committee, and Madam Clerk, will you please call item number three? Item number three is a hearing on the reduction of water usage. Okay, um, uh, I, <clears throat> I'm the author of this hearing request uh, about water usage in San Francisco, by, both by city departments, the city as a whole, and steps that we can take uh, legislatively and otherwise uh, to uh, improve water conservation in San Francisco. Uh, colleagues, as you know, our current drought is both a crisis and a reminder. It's a crisis we must confront with strategic operational policies to ensure that we're maintaining our city while con still conserving water daily. Uh, this includes sacrifices, uh, like not being able to water everything that we want to water. Uh, today, we will hear what the current operational policies are for water usage in our city by city departments, uh, what individual city departments are doing to respond to the drought. Um, for example, the PUC will address us in addition to DPW, Rec and Park, and the Department of the Environment. Uh, we need to be sure we're striking the right balance uh, to have thriving, livable public spaces and parks in our cities while also being responsible and thinking about the long-term sustainability uh, of our, our entire region. Uh, this drought is also a reminder we need to keep pushing ourselves as individuals uh, to implement better water, water conservation policies. Uh, even if we get blasted by rain tomorrow, for weeks to come, we know that this drought is not the last uh, one that we will see um, when we know that water is not an endlessly available resource. For too long uh, in this state, we have acted as if water uh, is uh, infinite in nature, uh, and we know that uh, our usable water is not uh, infinite in nature and that there are limits, and we are seeing those limits now, and those limits will continue to be tested. Uh, we're lucky uh, here to have clean and uh, very abundant water resource from Hetch Hetchy, uh, but we know that even Hetch Hetchy has its uh, limits. We need to take action in the short run and in the long run to continue to reduce water usage, to be more efficient and more strategic in how we use water, and to make sure that we are preparing for the future. Uh, San Francisco is already in many ways at the forefront in terms of water conservation. Uh, thanks to the Public Utilities Commission uh, for its uh, very uh, cutting-edge work, uh, we consume significantly less water than other areas, but we can and must do better. Um, in addition, uh, we need to make sure we are continuing to think about overall city usage uh, of water going beyond our departments. Um, we need to be talking about issues uh, like submetering of multi-unit buildings, uh, we know that many of our multi-unit buildings, both commercial and residential, have one meter for the entire building. So individual offices or apartments or condos, uh, individuals have absolutely no incentive uh, to conserve water uh, other than the general desire to conserve uh, water. Uh, and so uh, we, we know that individual metering can be uh, a way to make sure that people have the right incentives to conserve water. We also know that there are challenges around individually metering multi-unit uh, building, buildings. Uh, in addition, um, thank you. Uh, water uh, reuse and recycling uh, is a very, very important potential 
uh, source of uh, water conservation, allowing us to reuse water uh, for non uh, for non potable uh, uses, uh, for basically for uses other than washing and uh, uh, drinking. Um, yeah, although we have made some progress uh, in water reuse in San Francisco, we have a long way uh, to go to make sure uh, that we are uh, maximizing our reuse of water. Um, so we'll be hearing from various city departments um, about uh, these issues, again, both uh, city departmental use of water and also uh, whether we should be moving towards public policies that uh, take even stronger steps uh, for, to encourage all San Franciscans to use uh, less water. Uh, so colleagues, if there are no additional opening comments, I'd like to turn it over to the Public Utilities uh, Commission. Uh, Steve Ritchie, the Assistant General Manager for the Water Enterprise, is here. Um, as well as Paula Kehoe, the Director of Resource uh, Management. Mr. Ritchie. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chairman Weiner and, and Supervisors. Uh, I'm Steve Ritchie, the Assistant General Manager for Water. Uh, I'll be followed by uh, other city representatives and department representatives, uh, including Paula Kehoe, our Manager of Water Resources. I will give the large overview of the drought conditions and where we are, uh, and they will focus on departmental uh, performance uh, and, in particular, in Paula's case, on citywide conservation and recycling efforts we put forward. Uh, if I can have the slides up, please. Uh, where are we now? Uh, the three-year period of 2012 through 2014 is the driest three-year period in our 97-year hydrologic record. No three years in a row have ever been this dry. For us, the water year starts October 1st and ends September 30th, so we just ended the water year, and again, that driest three-year period. Uh, also, based on tree ring analysis, uh, the flow deficit, flow deficit in the Tuolumne River at LaGrange, which is just downstream from Don Pedro Dam, hasn't been this low since basically the Revolutionary War. So Washington might have preferred to cross the Tuolumne as opposed to the Delaware uh, in this situation. Um, we continue to request 10% voluntary water use reduction by our customers system-wide and utilizing uh, the new Don Pedro Water Bank, managing our reservoir storage and reducing demand has left us well prepared to move into the future. Uh, this is a chart that I use routinely with our commission showing our reservoir storage levels. Uh, and I highlight three levels here. In Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, we're at about 78% of maximum storage. That is, for a, for a drinking water reservoir, that's better than a lot of other people in the state have. And part of the reason is because we have this thing called the Water Bank in New Don Pedro to help fulfill our obligations to the irrigation districts. So you see the second red arrow is the Water Bank, which is down at 42%. So as we've drawn that down, we've been able to preserve water upstream in Hetch Hetchy that leaves us in good shape going forward. Uh, our total system storage now, all those reservoirs added together, including the water bank, is about 59%. Last time this year, we were about 73%. So we're down from where we were last year because the drought has continued. But again, we're at least decent shape relative to other water agencies. And when, 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 when do you anticipate the water bank would go down to would it go down to zero or to a low enough number that it would really start having significant impacts on Hetch Hetchy? Well, the lowest we got this year was 197,000 acre feet. Uh, the last time it got down to that level was uh, the 1987 through 92 drought. Uh, it, that was the low point for us this year. Back in that drought, it actually dropped all the way down to zero three or four times. So we could end up, if it continues dry, it could go lower uh, in the next year. And I'll talk in my last slide about you know, what ifs for the future. 
Uh, but again, it's, it's actually come back now about 40,000 acre feet over the summer as we brought water down from Cherry to help replenish that. Uh, the next slide shows our system-wide deliveries. Uh, the red and blue lines are uh, a five-year average, uh, which smooths it out a little bit, and the blue is uh, calendar year 2013. Uh, the green is calendar year 2014 demands, and the dashed black line is what we felt we needed to achieve in terms of demand to actually achieve the 10% reduction. And you can see early in the year, uh, demands were variable and even up somewhat as people were early in the drought. Uh, but starting from June 1st on, uh, the, the performance has actually been very outstanding by our customers. People have really gotten the message that this isn't a drought and they have to conserve. In fact, right now for the last week, uh, demand was about 25% down from what it was last year. So people have really gotten on board with reducing demands in this time of drought, and that's what's absolutely necessary. And so we're very, very happy with our customers' performance. So, so that's overall, um, that, that San Francisco or? or the, this the is San Francisco and our wholesale service area. Uh, this is everybody together. You know, we, we like to look at the system yeah. as everybody needs to do their part and everybody has done their so, part. So for the entire um, area that the, that the water enterprise serves, usage overall is down 25%? Yeah, last week it was down 25%. Overall this year looks like it will average out to somewhere around 10 to 12% reduction from last year. So it's the 10% reduction we've called for plus a little bit more. Okay. So people are doing good. Um, the current actions that we are, are doing, of course, we're continuing that request for a 10% demand reduction system-wide. Uh, we've imposed a 10% mandatory reduction of outdoor irrigation of ornamental landscapes and turf for our retail customers here in San Francisco. That's consistent with statewide regulation. Uh, we're implementing a water waste education and enforcement program where we're, we're letting people know if, if they're observed wasting water, they need to do something about it. Uh, we're reporting monthly to the State Water Board uh, on our performance, as other water agencies around the state are required. Uh, we're working with the city departments, especially large users and irrigation account holders. Uh, and we're actually cooperating with and assisting our wholesale customers in demand reduction efforts as well. Can you, um, and if you're going to get to this, just I'm happy sure. to, to wait, but in terms of clarifying what the rules are um, for individuals, whether it's small business owners or property owners, because uh, we had a lot of questions about, am I allowed to wash my sidewalk? Uh, and I know there was discussion. Yes. The, the rules that, the state rules that were promulgated, um, as is often the case, sometimes ignore the fact that cities exist. And so it's very focused on suburban, like you can water, uh, you know, a lawn, but you can't uh, let it run off into a sidewalk. Of course, in cities, we don't have very many lawns, and we have a lot of heavy usage and uh, fecal matter and, and other stuff on our on our sidewalks. And so I know there was some input, uh, but can you just let us know what are the rules for, for homeowners, small business owners, and so forth? Sure. Your question is very timely because the next slide okay. shows the, the basic rules that uh, the state adopted. Uh, the first one is... Basically, you can't overwater landscapes. Uh, that one uh, we actually already had on the book as a regulation here in San Francisco. So that's, that's been a rule here in San Francisco for many times that you can't allow water to flow off of whatever you're irrigating. You need to keep it on the green stuff that you're trying to actually grow. Uh, the second one uh, is that to actually wash a motor vehicle, you have to have a, a shutoff nozzle or device. This is not a complicated requirement. You know, we give away nozzles, spray nozzles. So, again, that's a fairly easy one to comply with. 
the third one is the one that really is, is really relevant to San Francisco, and that's the application of potable water to driveways and sidewalks. Uh, in the draft regulation, they, they had words like that and something else, and we very consciously argued for an exception for public health and safety to deal with the fact that in urban life you have to deal with lots of things. You need to deal with human waste, animal waste, uh, you know, sticky food waste material, things that can be a real nuisance and actually a public health hazard. So we got an exception in there so that people are allowed to actually use potable water uh, as efficiently as possible but still allowed to use it to deal with those kind of really dirty circumstances. And, and so when you have, uh, say, a shop owner um, on Castro Street or Folsom Street or on Third uh, Street or wherever they might be who they, you know, since they, you know, water or they wash hopefully in a very efficient way, the sidewalk, it, it, are they just generally allowed to do that or do they have to, is there, do they have to look and see what exactly is on there? Because I think for a lot of, uh, you know, people, you, you have to, you, are, you don't always know where the urine is on the right. sidewalk. You know it's somewhere. Um, you may not be able to see it, but you want to keep your sidewalk clean. Well, I will, uh, a couple of obvious examples uh, where, you know, we have a, a water wasting reporting line come through 311 where people can report what they think is water waste. We'll send a notification to that account saying, gee, you were reported, just make sure you're doing the right things. Uh, frequently, those, those people will call us. One was a, a grocery owner who has to deal with, you know, handling food all the time, things accumulate outside. They're going to attract vermin if it's just left there. Uh, so we talked to that, you know, shop owner about, okay, sweep up what you can and definitely wash down what you can't because you can't have vermin around a shop like that. Uh, in uh, very locally here, between the library and the Asian Art Museum. Uh, they used to steam clean those uh, hard spaces all the time, you know, about two, three times a week. Uh, now, very regularly, they're sweeping everything and they've reduced their uh, uh, power washing down to once every two weeks or so. So they've gotten more efficient about it. You know, it's easier just to sort of do it. Now they're a little more thoughtful. You don't have to dig in and find out whatever this nasty substance is. Uh, if it's, you know, emitting an odor or if you have reason to believe it's anything that's going to be uh, truly offensive and, and sicken people, yes, you should be able to clean it up. And that's, that's the attitude we've taken and have followed through on. Thank you. Supervisor Kim. Um, I just had a quick question back on the nozzle. Mm -hmm. um, because I know a lot of buildings have it, and I've seen it. So did you, you had mentioned that you can get that through the PUC? Yes. And how would you procure that? How would we let our residents know about that? Well, uh, you can come to our customer service at 525 Golden Gate uh, uh -huh. Avenue. Uh, I think we've brought along some material for you that will come up later in the presentation of exactly you know, the material we make available to people, both equipment and mm -hmm. literature, uh, but certainly calling our uh, water conservation hotline and the, the telephone number will come up later in the presentation. And, and just to clarify, this is to ensure that when the water comes out of the hose, as soon as you stop needing it, the rest of the water that's in the hose won't trip won't out. Won't come out, yeah, Got exactly. It. So if that's you're great. washing your car, you know, with no nozzle on it, you're just letting the right. water run, you spray it on the car, then you throw it in the right. sidewalk, that's not allowed. Okay. And uh, uh, while we're on that, so I know the, the PUC ha also has programs that I think a lot of people don't, I know about in terms of uh, faucets and shower heads, mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's a, I know there's a, a law that was passed a number of years ago that you have to, when you sell a home, you have to put a low-flow toilet in. That's correct. And, uh, which I, I think there might be a rebate for that even, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, and actually Paula Kehoe and her part okay. of the presentation will cover all that. Great. I think I just for those kinds of things, we just a lot of people just don't know what exists. Yeah, we want so. to make sure good information gets out there because those programs are available and helpful. Uh, and the last of the uh, prohibitions was the use of potable water in fountains or other decorative water features unless there's a recirculating system. So actually, if you look at these, these are not hard to comply with. Um, you know, they're statewide now. Uh, again, one we already had in the books, uh, shut-off nozzles easy. Uh, yeah, just wasting water to clean hardscapes, that's not a good idea. And having a recirculating fountain. I think we'll need to go beyond these, of course, if, if it gets worse, uh, but they're the good starting point. Um, I want to turn to the city departments. How are they doing? Uh, through August, demand is collectively down 11 percent from 2013, which has been the savings of about 188 million gallons. Of the large users, uh, DPW, the Port, DPH, the PUC, and Reckon Park are all well above the 10% reduction goal. Housing Authority is just below that goal at 9%, but I, I single these out collectively here uh, because of the 188 million gallons saved, those departments have saved 184 of those million gallons. So the big users have been very responsive, and, and that's a really good thing. Uh, most departments have submitted a water conservation plan. Uh, come, some have lagged a little bit. DPH just got theirs into us, and so people are, are doing what they need to do to follow up on conserving. Uh, that includes an assessment of the plumbing fixtures, because we're going to work with them to replace those old fixtures that are high water use fixtures. Uh, and we continue to provide our audits, free devices, and fixture replacement assistance. I'm sure she's backing up to um, one of your um, the broader point about the source of our. Um, water. Yes. Uh, my understanding is 85% of our water comes from one source, the Tuolumne River. Is that That's accurate? correct. Okay. Um, how does that compare to other major cities in terms? Because we're very, obviously extremely reliant on this one uh, source. Is that um, is that typical? Um, is that should we be trying to diversify? Um, actually. Uh, we tend to be a little bit more reliant on one source, but we do have the local sources that we use whenever there's a problem with Hetch Hetchy, whether it's plumbing or anything else. Uh, and we are actively diversifying our water sources right now. Uh, we've uh, approved two groundwater projects in the last, uh, uh, not last year, uh, a local groundwater project on the west side and also a groundwater storage and recovery project jointly with some of our wholesale customers that will actually be before the board uh, later on this month to release funds to actually move forward the construction of that. So we're working hard at diversifying our supplies because we, we recognize there is strength in that diversity. Uh, but at the same time, if I had to pick a watershed in California that I was going to rely on, the Tuolumne would be it. And, and that, in terms of the Tuolumne providing 85 percent of our water supply, do you see that number going down over time as we, uh, as we uh, go online with some of these other sources? Um, it, it will come to balancing, you know, what we use them for. Uh, certainly the groundwater project that we're looking at in San Francisco will provide, provide about 4 million gallons per day, which is not a large number in the scheme of things. Uh, but we could actually jack that up potentially in dry times to use a little bit more water. So I think we would want to uh, vary the use depending on any given conditions to uh, optimize you know, the, the quality and the value for our customers. Thank you. Um, I have one last slide for my portion of the presentation, which is what about next year? So what's going to happen? And uh, anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen is less, next year is lying. Uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, so we have to think in terms of multiple possibilities. Uh, if it's at or above median precipitation, 
over our 97-year record. Uh, we'll be on the road to recovery of our system storage. That's, you know, that will be a good feeling seeing rain and snow like that. Uh, if next year is similar to 2007, which was the last time in memory of a recent dry year, uh, that's drier than normal, uh, the results will, will be okay, but we'll be able to live with the, the maintaining the 10% demand reduction. Uh, if we have something similar to 1977, which is the second driest year on record, uh, that is when we start to get into serious situation. Uh, if that happens, we'll need to start to plan early next year for a 20% demand reduction and begin consideration of alternative water supply options. And we'll talk more about those water supply options later, but uh, as we do modeling, we take year types and line them up. Uh, and I'll tell you that really three bad years, three really bad years, uh, would be a real challenge to manage through. But we'll find a way because we have to. And so I'd be happy to answer any questions on sort of the big picture here before I turn it over to one of the other departments. Great. Okay. I think uh, Rachel Gordon, I believe, is next. Good afternoon, Supervisors. I'm Rachel Gordon, Director of Policy and Communications for San Francisco Public Works. Thanks for having this hearing, Supervisor Wiener. Uh, Public Works is indeed one of the biggest municipal water users in San Francisco, both because of our landscaping and because of our street cleaning. So uh, we have dramatically <coughs> reduced water usage since the declaration that we needed to reduce consumption, water consumption. We've cut it almost in half, as you can see uh, by the slide, from August of 2013 to August of 2014. Looks like you cut it by two-thirds, actually. Yeah, it'll get into it so you do better math than I do, Supervisor. Uh, also, if you just look at the, the last uh, months with, between July and August of 2014, and that's really because we started to cut off all our irrigation, uh, automatic irrigation. So I wanted to talk about a few things that we do at Public Works to do this. One, we limit um, steam cleaning, as you just discussed, to public health hazards. Instead of doing uh, regularly scheduled steam cleaning, we really rely on the reports that come in, as well as having our crews uh, through 311, as well as having our crews uh, go out on their regular runs and looking for that. Again, we're looking for human waste, uh, pet waste, urination, uh, other bodily fluids that we really do not want on our streets and sidewalks. So we've done that. We've also restricted the water usage on our mechanical street sweepers. Those are the sweepers that you see, the trucks that go out mainly in the residential neighborhoods. Um, we do use the sweepers, the water on the sweepers when it's dusty out there, which is quite a bit, um, but we do not have them on automatically all the time. We also now shut them off when they're going through the intersections, not just by the homes and businesses. And also for public works, we really restricted when we can wash our own vehicles. Things used to get hosed down almost every day after a, a shift, and now it's really if they have a lot of garbage accumulated in it or smells and, and uh, hazards, then they'll get washed. One of the biggest initiatives we've taken is with our uh, medians to turning it off. We've turned off all our automatic irrigation. We can still turn it on manually, which we do on occasion. We want to make sure that the plants that we have there have uh, taken hold into the ground so we will hand water them. Uh, if need be, on, on the newest plantings. We're also uh, using reclaimed water when we can, when the, when the big flusher trucks go out every morning, afternoon, or in the evening on the first runs of the day. That's when we use reclaimed water we get from the southeast treatment plant. So that's several thousand gallons. Can I, um, just because we also get a lot of questions about this in terms of the shift in irrigation policy. My understanding is that currently DPW has stopped watering grass 
So allowing all the grass on, say, the medians or other DPW-maintained uh, public spaces, letting the grass all die, uh, and then presumably, uh, knock on wood, this drought will at some point end, and then uh, we can replant or bring the grass back. And that um, any trees or plants that require watering are still being watered. Uh, for example, new trees have to be um, watered for a while, um, and then the plants that were plant that we planted recently have all been drought resistant, but they may they still require watering early on. Right. So we want to make sure that the plants and trees will be established. We pay particular attention to our trees in San Francisco. We have um, about 105,000 street trees. That's trees that are at the curbside as well as along the median. So we are hand watering those if they're not already established. And you did mention that we are putting in drought tolerant plants. Um, we did it along 19th Avenue. We're about to do it on Sunset Boulevard. We just had a contractor out last week who started to remove the grass from Sunset to put in drought-tolerant plants. Uh, we have them on Guerrero Street. We're looking to do it on Mission Street downtown. So you're going to start seeing that all over the city when mm -hmm. you can. It is a pricey endeavor uh, to pull that out. So the grass will die when we can put in new plantings that are drought-tolerant. We will. Uh, hopefully the grass will come back just with a little bit of rain and water. If not, we can go out and, and reseed. That's not overly expensive. But we really are trying to rethink how uh, how we've landscaped as a city and looking for smarter, more you know, water water resist water lowering lowering our water use uh, with any of our landscaping in the city. When did DPW um, start planting only drought tolerant plants and trees? We started doing that where we have the new policy starting this year uh, after the mayor made his declaration to cut the water uh -huh. usage by 10%. We went with that policy then that we're only going to be putting in the drought-tolerant plants. We have been doing it, though, on a case-by-case -case basis. Like on Guerrero, you'll see that 19th Avenue. Previously, we knew that that was a smart way to do planting in San Francisco, but now we're making that our policy going forward. Okay. Um, thank you. I'm going to go to the next to the next slide when we get there. Sorry, hit too many times here. Deed, 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 deed. Apologize for that. <laughs> See, my finger got trigger happy here. Hmm. All right, sorry guys. That's why people laugh at me when I do this stuff. Huh. I went to Rec and Park. You gonna help me out here? Yeah. All right, I'm also gonna talk a little bit about, thank you. I wanna talk about some uh, new initiatives that we've taken that are pretty important. One of them in San Francisco is the um, Tenderline Pit Stop Program, which Supervisor Kim knows about. And that's where we're doing something that's both, let me go right there. The Tenderline Pit Stop Project is something that we began in July, and it wasn't necessarily to save water, although we knew that would be a benefit, and we worked with the PUC in terms of implementing this program. But what the Tenderline Pit Stop does is it brings in three public toilets uh, to the Tenderloin during the day. We truck them in four days a week, truck them in and truck them out. And what we found is that usage has been going up uh, considerably since it started in in. July, we now have about 150 uses per day that it operates, uh, about one flush every five minutes if you put it out over the week. Um, what that really, what we've seen though where it helps with water savings is that we used to get about 28 requests for steamers in the tenderloin a day. Now we're down to about 19 steamer requests and we expect that to keep dropping. It's too soon to say that there's a direct correlation, but in the last couple of months we really have seen this trend continuing. It's not a tremendous amount of water savings, but it's still significant enough that 
We think it's a good water-saving policy. Each steamer request uses about 15 gallons of water, so we're saving about 135 gallons a day at this point. There have also been some requests uh, throughout the city, different neighborhoods from the Haight, Russian Hill, uh, south of Market, to see about expanding this pilot project to those neighborhoods. It's something that we're going to be considering, but it does take some resources, both staffing and, and uh, money. The Tenderloin Pit Stop, why this program works more than a lot of other public toilets has is because we have staffing there. There's someone who is at, at the Tenderloin Pit Stops any time that they're operational, so people feel pretty safe going in to them and using them, and also uh, we can monitor who's using it, um, what times of day we can really be statistically driven on, on the effectiveness of this project. Supervisor Kim? Thank you. I, I just wanted to do a plug as well. We get so much positive feedback on this program from the Tenderloin, both from those who need to use the toilets um, and also from our neighbors and residents um, who have also noticed a decrease um, in urination and for feces um, in the neighborhood. So I do want to thank um, DPW for making this project happen um, in a timely manner. I know that we've been talking about it for um, almost two years, but it really is making a difference for our residents, whatever the data is showing. But I'm glad the data is supporting what we're hearing anecdotally and I know that our office wants to work to make sure that we can fund that um, into the future. Right. We'd love to have it go past January Absolutely. Uh, and, and also to expand it to other areas. And I want to say just while, while we're talking about water savings, it also is a program that provides dignity for people so they have yeah. somewhere they can go that's not going to the bathroom in an alley or a, or a street where you really do have to bring in cleaning, and it, it's helpful all around for them. So I'm going to, uh, unless you have any questions for me, I'm going to hand it over to Rick and Carl. Just um, the, one, the slide right before that. I think with the um, confusion, I think we accidentally skipped over that about um, DPW's use of uh, recycled water, and I know we'll be discussing that later in terms of strategies, but um, in terms of the number of gallons being used, ranging it looks like around maybe 100,000 uh, gallons a month, um, how, does that, how, how does that fit into the total amount of water being used, and where are you getting the recycled so, water so it's from? A very, it's actually a small amount um, compared to what we use. The, just to explain how this program works is our operations yard is out um, near, near Bayshore and Cesar Chavez, so it's in the southeast part of the city. So when the trucks go out for their first runs, they can load up near, in the southeast treatment plant right near there uh, with a few thousand gallons of water, of reclaimed water, and go out to do their runs. One thing we don't want to do when you think about other environmental issues like climate change and things, we don't want to have a truck that might be in North Beach or the Sunset District uh, or even the Castro that goes out and they have to come back and get more water. So one thing that we've been working with the Public Utilities Commission on, on is where can we get uh, other sources of reclaimed water. It's going to uh, mean some retrofitting of the existing plants. There's some talk of running uh, piping or hosing out to other areas of the city so we can use that. Some water is available at the southeast plant. We just want to make it that it's usable citywide and available citywide. Yeah, um, we'll talk about this, but uh, it just seems so... Uh, uh, sort of common sense that we would really be aggressively moving towards uh, recycled water for everything other than drinking Right, so we use recycled water, I'm sorry, Supervisor, we use recycled water both for flushing down the streets, cleaning the streets, as, as well as for irrigation. We do have watering trucks as well. It's not just the big flushers that you can see uh, that we use, that you have a hose and they can go and, and water the plants. But we're very eager to really increase our use of recycled water in the city. Great. Thank you, Ms. Gordon. Thank you. Colleagues, if there are no additional questions, I think Reckon Park is next. Mr. Yeah, Denny Kern. Kern is up next. Yep. Welcome, Mr. Kern. 
Good afternoon, Supervisors, uh, Chairman Weiner, and Committee. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, Rec and Park thinks we've been doing a lot in this area, so we welcome the opportunity to sort of highlight the work that we have been doing. Uh, have the slides up, please. The um, <clears throat> Rec and Park is uh, one of the largest municipal uh, water users in the city, and that's because we are arguably the largest uh, uh, public land manager in the city, uh, 3,500, almost 3,500 acres of open space and parks, <coughs> and uh, which comprises uh, nearly 14% of the totals of the city's total landscape. Uh, or real estate. Uh, the annual water usage by Rec and Park to maintain this uh, large swath of open space is 795,336 uh, cubic feet, which is the, with the water unit there. I believe there are 748 gallons in each, uh, each cubic foot. The, I'm going to divide the rest of my um, uh, presentation here into our long-term conservation strategies and our short-term. On our long-term, um, irrigation is a, a very big factor for us and where a lot of our, our water usage goes. Um, we've had a, a very effective uh, partnership with the PUC over the last uh, few years. The Rec and Park Department has received large landscape retrofit grants uh, totaling more than $2 million from the PUC for irrigation improvements. We've been able to complete these projects at Jefferson Square, at Alta Plaza Park, and at Balboa Park. These, uh, these grants are intended to fund irrigation system retrofits and maximize water savings through conservation measures and innovative operational practices. Uh, and we achieve the, uh, these results at these three parks through replacement of leaking and antiquated irrigation systems, the installation of NOMO fescue, which is a low water using lawn alternative and other uh, drought resistant or drought tolerant uh, plants uh, in the landscape. In total, these improvements at these three parks are saving uh, 5.17 million gallons per year, which is the equivalent to the annual water use of 113 single-family homes. Additionally, uh, we're very, very happy to report that this program with the PUC is continuing, and our next project will be the irrigation retrofit at Alamo Square. On the recycled water front, we have recycled water at Harding Park and have had it there since December of 2012. And uh, just this last week, we have started uh, recycled water at the east end of Sharp Park down in Pacifica. Uh, and then we're also in a very large and very complex project with the PUC to uh, connect and bring recycled water into Golden Gate Park and also up to Lincoln Park uh, sometime you know, beyond 2017. Continuing uh, long-term strategies, uh, green features in our capital design as we renovate a, uh, renovate a park. Uh, one of the center uh, pieces is water conservation and actually keeping water runoff, stormwater uh, retention on the site. Uh, we've had uh, bioretention ponds. One example is at Cayuga Playground, which captures and keeps the stormwater on site. Uh, living roofs atop clubhouses such as Cayuga and also Hayes Valley Playground. And water infiltration and retention areas at Sunset Recreation Center, which keeps the uh, water out of the, storms, the stormwater system and keeps it uh, on site for percolation and infiltration. Uh, also, as I mentioned, the use of native and drought-tolerant plants in our renovated landscapes and no mow grass, and we're also exploring uh, the increased use of permeable paving where hardscape is required. 
Uh, moving to the short-term conservation strategies, uh, these are things that we have instituted in the last couple months. We have a program we call Water-Free Wednesdays, and that uh, Rec and Park does not operate any irrigation system, automatic or manual, on Wednesdays for that 24-hour period. Uh, we reduce irrigation duration on both our timer-controlled and, uh, uh, and manual systems by 10%. We have shut off all non-recirculating water features in parks. Uh, some of those are the water play features at Mission Playground, Julius Kahn, Lafayette Park, 24th and York Mini Park, Corette Children's Quarter, and Golden Gate Park. And for those water features that are recirculating, we have reduced the operational time, uh, such as the fountains in Music Concourse, the Golden Gate Park, Valancourt Fountain uh, at Justin Herman Plaza, and Huntington Park. Uh, the, the department has stopped the washing of all vehicles and equipment. And we have also halted the power washing of hardscapes and facilities, except where safety is compromised, and that is usually in the case of removing bio-waste or the sanitation of public bathrooms. The uh, continuing the short-term conservation strategies, uh, we are using what is called TDR technology. That stands for time domain reflexology technology, which is just a big fancy word for a uh, electronic water probe. We have a probe that we can stick into any landscape and the probe instantaneously and electronically measures the actual water content in the root system so that we can then calculate the actual water application that is, that is needed and no more. So we're using that through all of, throughout our parks in our golf courses. Uh, we have established a goal of 10% of water reduction for all of our capital projects. And so we have noticed this to our uh, capital project contractors so that they are uh, pursuing the same goal and also for our concessionaires and leaseholders in the department of that 10% reduction goal and have given them information on how they can help us achieve that uh, through their concession or their lease. Public education continues in all of our public areas, whether it's recreation centers, uh, public restrooms, any place the public may gather. So we will have uh, information up asking for them to uh, help us to reduce the, the water usage through the public, whether that's use, uh, reduced shower times at pools or using hand sanitizer in restrooms, or, uh, and also asking them to report all water leaks that they encounter on Reckon Park property through 311. And uh, per the uh, previous discussion about uh, hoses with shutoff nozzles, uh, where you find those usually in Reckon Park or either in the community gardens or down at the marina uh, with the boat, uh, the, the berth holders down there. So all, all uh, hoses have been uh, retrofitted to ensure that they have shutoff nozzles on any place that the public would be using a Reckon Park hose. And then finally, on the short-term conservation strategies, uh, water repairs. We have uh, prioritized all of the uh, uh, maintenance and repair work orders that we get through our electronic work order system from the staff or through 311 so that after emergency or health and safety, water conservation work orders are the next priority. And we've completed over 274 of those repairs since February 1st. And we also have in this year's budget $150,000 in um, uh, a funding line to convert low efficiency fixtures to high efficiency. And we are nearly one third uh, through that particular work with that $150,000.
So how are we doing? Um, the, uh, this number here, I think, shows where we are at the moment. Uh, our top line there is our January through August 2013 water consumption, actual water usage. And the second line is the same time period in 2014. And you can see we have a 79,000 some 100 cubic feet reduction, which makes us, uh, we have a 15.4% reduction in our water usage, which we are monitoring with the assistance of the PUC month to month. Uh, with that, that concludes my update. I'd be happy to answer any questions. <clears throat> sure. Um, so thank you for that. Just two questions. Uh, so uh, right now, um, in, uh, is Reckon Park, we, we heard that the DP, DPW is allowing grass to die on medians um, with the hope that we'll eventually be able to have grass again. Uh, what, if anything, is Reckon Park allowing to uh, die? Um, <laughs> so it's a good question, and we've actually wrestled with this quite a bit. Uh, we've actually not issued a death sentence to any of our uh, <laughs> landscapes uh, yet. That would certainly be in our pocket. Uh, we have looked at, uh, we're monitoring how the reduction is going because we're trying, I think Rachel made mention of this, we're trying to balance the uh, achieving the water reduction and then balancing that against what the uh, loss of the landscape infrastructure would mean in replacement costs. Um, the a large park, several acre park, um, uh, losing that is, a, I, I think, some, I'm not going to speak to DPW, it would be somewhat different than the use of a landscape median um, because we've got uh, the open space, we have athletic fields, we have places that people, you know, want to go and, and, and enjoy. Um, so right now we are not um, um, sort of segregating off any of our open space for actual uh, no irrigation at all, but that remains, as uh, Steve had mentioned, looking ahead to the next year. If we have to up the game, that is certainly on the table. And I truly hope it won't come to that. I think we probably all agree that that would be pretty uh, depressing to start having uh, foliage uh, die off in our parks. Uh, and then the second question, in terms of uh, moving towards uh, uh, recycled water or reclaimed water, uh, I, I think it's great that you know some of the parks are already using it and that we're you're moving forward uh, with Golden Gate Park. Uh, but uh, and I, my apologies if you said this statistic, but right now currently, what percentage of Reckon Park's water use is with reclaimed water, and where do you and what do you where do you see that being, or what num what percentage you uh, see? Sorry, I'm not being very articulate. Where will that percentage be within a few years? The, um, I actually don't have a percentage for you, uh, Supervisor. As I mentioned, the two parks where we actually are on recycled water is Harding Park and Sharp Park down in Pacifica. Harding, you know, through Daly City and uh, Sharp Park through North Coast, North Coast County Water District. Um, but we have a, a very, uh, like I said, a very big project with the PUC bringing recycled water to, to Golden Gate Park. But it's, it's fairly complex. It's a combination of, um, and I, I think probably the PUC may speak to this, uh, the availability of the recycled water coupled with uh, being able to apply it in conformance with Title 22, which is state law, which, which tightly regulates the application of recycled water. And my understanding is that for the water features, like the really wonderful uh, water features for kids in uh, Admission Playground, which I, I know are now off, that um, under state law you cannot use recycled water for those water features because it's unsanitary for the kids? That's correct. Okay, so unfortunately the kids will have to wait for the drought to be over to be able to jump around in the water at Mission Playground. Uh, that, that is true. Okay. Great. Uh, Supervisor Kim. 
That is too bad to hear because I know that is often the number one feature that our kids love about our parks. For whatever reason, it's water. Um, the only person perhaps as sad as the kids is ourselves not being able to provide it. So. <laughs> I Actually, I, this question came up when you talked about cleaning hardscape. And I was curious what the process uh, and Park has for cleaning our playgrounds. Like the structures, the slides, and you know the play structures in our playgrounds. The um, we, we actually do not. We have never uh, been washing down regularly. Uh, play, you know, play structures in playgrounds. Um, the you know we, we certainly sweep them and and keep them free of sand and, and clean them up from you know uh, litter or debris. But uh, even prior to the drought, actually watering or actually hosing them down. Well, let me let me back up on that for a second. We would power wash certain ones on occasion if, if it looked like there was a lot of. For example, uh, bird droppings or something, we would certainly power wash that, but it was not a scheduled maintenance practice. It was all you know, ad hoc as to if, um, whether it was needed or not. So um, we don't have any regular cleanings of our playground equipment? Uh, by power washing, no. How do we, uh, I, I'm not asking specifically to power washing. Um, how do we clean our playground equipment? The, uh, it's uh, basically surface cleaned uh, by our custodians, whether it's a broom, brush, you know, just, uh, you know, dry wiping it down with, uh, with cloths or something like that. But uh, the power washing, even, like I say, before the drought, only came into play if it, uh, if it actually needed it because of a specific condition. It, and how often do we uh, clean our playground equipment? The, um, the custodians are through uh, every day, and the gardeners help too. For example, if there's sand, all the sand is swept back into the sand area, and they do a walkthrough, pick up all the litter and everything. But in um, the, uh, as, as I said, actual the, the wiping down of a uh, of a play structure is uh, is only if it appears it needs it. Um, is that complaint driven, or do we check um, the play equipment ourselves? The, the custodians and the gardeners go through, and you know, they, 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 they walk through and, and check it every day and, and keep it clean, yes. So we have enough staffing to be able to um, check all of our playground equipment every day? Yes. Okay, that's good to hear. You know, I, this came up actually because our families and our youth are taking back um, Sergeant Macaulay Playground on O'Farrell and Larkin. Mm -hmm. And one of the concerns that I did hear was that there was moss and other things that uh, tend to collect underneath the structure, not on the ground, but underneath the structure. And they, they had said, from their observation, it didn't look like it was being cleaned. But they do know that the leaves aren't being swept off the floor, that that is definitely happening. And so actually, when you brought this up, I was just curious what our routine for cleaning the actual place structure is. And I definitely want to conserve water. I'm not advocating for, for that. But I, I just want to understand what we can tell our residents in terms of the regular maintenance of our place structure. Yes, uh, and we actually did meet with the Sergeant Macaulay Park group uh, last week. Yes. And um, the, uh, the moss issue they did bring up is on the, uh, uh, the tiles. Um, I see. The, the, yeah, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the poor in place tiles that, were, that are there on the, on the playground surface, uh, which, which can accumulate moss under the right conditions. Okay. So uh, they brought that to our attention. We'll, we're definitely going to take Great. a look at that and see what we can do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Mr. Kern. All right, I believe I'm followed by Department of the Environment. Right. Good afternoon, Supervisors and <clears throat> Chairman Weiner. I'm uh, Barry Hooper. I'm a Green Building Specialist with the Department of the Environment. So my role is uh, 
generally to assist the Department of Building Inspection with implementation of city's green building requirements and to understand how they fit in with uh, a number of other policies the city has. So I'll be talking with you about some financing and some policies <coughs> in the city these days. On the financing front, uh, San Francisco is, as you are aware, is operating a property assessed clean energy program, which is available to provide financing for not only <coughs> seismic retrofits, but also energy efficiency, renewable energy, and water efficiency uh, elements of uh, projects in multifamily and commercial buildings. Uh, to date, it has not been used for water efficiency financing, but it is available as a, a significant mechanism to ease the first upfront cost of a large uh, efficiency improvements. On the policy front, um, San Francisco maintains a San Francisco Green Building Code, which in essence is the combination of the state's Green Building Code, also known as CalGreen, and the use of uh, leadership labels such as lead in Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, or LEAD, and also a number of different uh, specific local policies. And so those put together the San Francisco Green Building Code. And with regard to indoor water consumption, uh, the most salient element of that is that uh, over the last few years, the state has instituted through CalGreen, as well as uh, several very similar um, policy efforts at the city level, through the, led by the SFPUC, a requirement that all uh, fixtures and fittings that are installed in any building, new or existing, as well as any fixture that is in an area served by an area of significant construction, uh, would need to be upgraded, and the upgrade is generally 20% um, more efficient than codes were prior to 2008. Uh, San Francisco also maintains the uh, Commercial Water Conservation Ordinance and the Residential Energy Conservation Ordinance, which uh, together have uh, water conservation requirements that include the main difference between the state legislation and local is the um, while the state legislation has substantially caught up with San Francisco's requirements, San Francisco is unique in requiring all inefficient fixtures to be uh, retrofitted in commercial buildings by 2017. So it's at a firm date whether or not there's a project to drive that uh, effort or not. In new construction, the city in large new commercial buildings and large new multifamily buildings asks for an additional 10% water efficiency threshold to be met. So a total of 30% over prior codes uh, through innovative design and also the state requires commissioning on all new commercial buildings as well as uh, large new multifamily buildings and that includes a review of the water efficiency systems to ensure that they are operating as designed. Um, so going into a little bit more detail uh, because the, uh, we were asked to discuss water submetering, there is an existing state requirement on, um, that requires indoor uh, excuse me, submetering of tenants in commercial buildings provided that there is either a new building of entirely commercial use of 50,000 square feet or larger or there's an addition to that any existing building that adds 50,000 square feet of commercial space and in that case meters would have to be installed for each um, tenant use expected to have significant consumption so 100 gallons or more a day that'd be roughly seven, seven office occupants in that space for example. If that's infeasible, there are backup options uh, metering the large systems that serve those tenant spaces. Um, we run into a unique challenge, though, in that San Francisco is one of very few cities that's had significant uh, development of commercial buildings 50,000 square feet or larger since 2010 when these policies were enacted. 
And so there's been this conundrum of whether there actually is tenant space in a new building that is built by the owner, even with the intention of leasing out that space. And so that um, issue of interpreting that code that requires the, uh, the metering to occur in either tenant leased spaces, rented spaces, or other spaces serving tenant needs has um, been argued successfully by the development community to be inapplicable because they haven't leased the space at the time of so, construction. So just, okay, so just to back up, um, the state law um, requires individual metering for commercial uh, buildings, larger commercial buildings, uh, but not for residential. That's right. Okay, so that could be problem number one, that there's no requirement for, in terms of you could build a mega um, residential uh, building, and there's absolutely no requirement building a 1,000 units uh, that you individually meter. That's right. Okay. That seems like problem number one. But um, moving to what the law is, so what you're saying is that under state law, um, commercial uh, multi-unit, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, buildings of 50,000 square feet or more yeah. have to be individually metered for tenant use. Uh, but developers are building these buildings and then saying, well, right now when I'm pulling my permits, uh, there's no one occupying it, so um, we don't know that it's going to be uh, used by, or it's not currently being used by tenants, so therefore I can group meter the entire building? That's what's being argued, yes. Has there been an effort in the state legislature to close uh, what that loophole that clearly was never intended? I'm not aware of one. And has the city ever taken the position that uh, that a, that that is an interpretation that is inconsistent with the with the intent of state law? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Um, it is up to the department. Of, so I'm in a little bit of awkward position. You don't, presenting. Uh, yeah. I advise the Department of Building Inspection, but they interpret the code. Okay. And uh, maybe when we're done here, I'd like DBI. I know um, uh, Mr. Pinelli from DBI is here. Um, uh, I would hope that that could be if. if if not corrected by the state legislature, it would seem like we could correct that locally because we can go above and beyond. Um, it, it seems to me, I mean, the fact that the legislature actually passed that kind of law, and we know getting things to the legislature, if anyone objects to it, is incredibly hard, um, that they actually passed a law clear, clearly with the intent that large commercial buildings be individually metered, and the fact that that is not happening here because of uh, a loophole um, or possible loophole, that, that seems to be a pretty bad result to me. I should offer a small uh, no. correction, and that's that the code is adopted by the State Building Standards Commission. Right. And so it's a regulatory instrument, so that that requirement was not specifically enacted by the legislature, oh. but the implication is similar. Okay. Um, but by the state, let's just yeah. say. Okay. Great. Thank you for that clarification. Um, yeah, so when you're done, I'm going to want DB. I think Mr. Pinelli from DBI is here. I want him to come up and talk about that. Great. Um, just a couple, last couple uh, bits of food for thought as, you, as we discuss this and as you uh, deliberate. Um, is that the, this requirement that we just went over that is not quite operating as intended is uh, only applicable to new buildings and to large, <coughs> large additions to new buildings. Uh, which would essentially be the buildings that already are required to have the most efficient equipment. So it, it isn't one of the, the conundrums is it isn't necessarily targeting um, the existing stock where there's likely to be the greatest variation in, in consumption. 
On the other hand, though, um, while the consumption is the greatest in existing stock, it's much more likely that they would be um, the plumbing configuration in existing buildings would be much more difficult to meter uh, because there would not be um, a single point to necessarily meter uh, any given tenant. So it could be a and, and this could be more for DBI, but in terms of existing buildings, I know that the, I know that converting from group meter to individual metering for for existing buildings, whether it's residential or commercial, can be um, prohibitively uh, expensive, and you may have to just remove the entire plumbing system, and replace it. But um, do, is there a variation in terms of um, when a building was built? So, for example, uh, is it would it be easier to retrofit, say, a 1995 building? versus, say, a 1905 building, again, converting from group metering to individual metering, or is it all equally hard? Uh, I'd expect it to be difficult to offer a consistent answer to that okay. question. Okay. Maybe maybe, maybe Mr. Pinelli can answer it when you're done. Uh, thank you. Okay, you are. Okay. I could answer any que other questions you might have. Uh, great. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, so, uh, Mr. Pinelli, the... Uh, Chief Plumbing Inspector for Department of Building Inspection is here. Maybe you can fill us in on uh, the department's perspective. Good afternoon. Thank you for the invitation. My name is Steve Pinelli. I'm the Chief Plumbing Inspector of San Francisco. Um, in regards to the last question you had with the buildings from 1905 to 1995 to 2005, it all depends on different layouts. Everybody has different designs. So unfortunately, to turn around and say it would be easy to retrofit a system or put some metering in. It's not as simple as just place this here and it takes care of everything, especially if you have multiple floors. If you have 20 floors and you have stacked units and you're running water lines or water mains up in parallel for all the units, it's almost impossible to, to take out one specific unit and another unit and meter those two units because the supply is coming up for both. So to meter just what they're using in that space, you'd have to actually have a supply that would run from one spot, come up, branch over, and before it branches over, put that sub meter on and then connect to all those units, or those fixtures, I should say. Uh, going forward, though, I think it's, I mean, I spoke, spoke with the PUC. Uh, they've enlightened me on a few different options that are available for metering fixtures or supplies uh, to other areas instead of putting a big, huge sub meter in, but different types of, I'll let them speak on that later. Uh, different types of devices that could make it easier for you to meter units and fixtures for certain apartments or buildings, occupants, anything. So it is obtainable. And then back to your other question about um, interpretation. Unfortunately, when, they, when people come forward and they're building something and they come forward as one tenant, when we read exactly what it states, it's one tenant that's there. When they're metering that one, that one group or that one tenant, it's very hard to turn around and say, well, how many floors is a tenant going to take? You might take one, you might take five floors, I might take five floors, somebody else takes five floors, so do you just sub-meter those five floors for that tenant or for everybody? But if, if I'm, uh, if a developer comes forward, let's say they're building a 70-story um, a uh, building where, you know, clearly there's not going to be one tenant for that entire building. And yes, there, maybe there will be 150 tenants or maybe there will be 45 tenants, but it's pretty crystal clear that there's going to be quite a few tenants. Um, are they actually saying, oh, this is a one-tenant building, so therefore no sub-metering? No, no, what's happening is, is a lot of people are coming forward saying, well, right now it's considered a new building, and we're moving forward, and we're making this one building, and I'm the only tenant, because I'm the only owner, 
and I have my meter that's for there, and therefore it's, it's basically sub-metered. You're seeing what they're using for that building, so it meets the intent of what's required. Then they get a certificate of final completion. That building is no longer a new building. It's an existing building, and then tenants are coming in. Well, it doesn't meet the intent, clearly. It may, may, arguably, maybe it meets the, the, the letter. The yes. But, I mean, the, the intent was that in these large new commercial buildings, they would be individually metered so that uh, businesses would have an incentive to conserve water instead of just thinking the landlord is going to pay for it. Correct. And I feel the same way you do, that I believe it should be metered, sub-metered yeah. for every floor that's being used. And, and do you, um, so you get this uh, pushback from the, Developers. Uh, the developer saying, or the owner saying, well, there aren't tenants in there now, so we don't have to sub-meter it. Has the department ever pushed back and said, no, you know what, this is not consistent with the clear intent of this uh, state rule, so therefore we are requiring you to individually meter? I have not specifically pushed back, no. Okay, because why not? One, Well, one of the other things is if I've got 20 floors, yeah. do I sub-meter one floor? and the other 19 are for yourself, because I'm the one that's using it, and I'm leasing out all 10, 19 units, 19 floors. It's, 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 I don't know who's going to be in those floors. Mm -hmm. So it's either you sub-meter every single floor, or you sub-meter sub who's leasing those floors. So if I'm, if I'm leasing five floors, then you're metering my usage for my five floors. Yeah. So what they're saying is, well, we don't know which ones are going to be used. So if they're using three floors, or they're using six floors, or they're using nine floors, right. who do you sub-meter? I believe it should be that every floor should be so metered, and that would cover everything. And can, I mean, has the department ever taken that position? Because it seemed to me that the department could push back. We can go for a code change. Yes, we could. So, so you think under the current code, you don't think you have the basis to push back? I think we would have to make changes to the one that we have now, yes. Okay. So we could pass a local uh, building code or plumbing code uh, uh, ordinance to basically go beyond the what the state rule requires yes we could okay and we're, we're going to take a serious look at that we'll yeah. work with the department sure. we'll reach out to the development community on it uh it just seems to me that there's a, a clear intent that is being flouted uh here and i know the department's in a difficult uh position uh, i would encourage you to you know if there is a way of taking a hard look and maybe pushing back if there is any basis to do that Try that, that would make sense the other issue you have is um, on multi-dwelling units. I know you mentioned about multi-dwelling units of 150 units, 250 units. That comes into play, but that's a very, very hard thing to do. Um, because of the layout, I mean, developers, the way they run their water, the way it's ran and, and how it's branched out and how it's done, you'd almost be sub-metering every single unit on a floor. So if you had 20 units on a floor, you'd be sub-metering every single f unit, not every single floor then. So that does come into play as well. So, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it should be some metered. I do think we should know exactly what's being used and being able to regulate exactly how much water is being used and who's wasting or using too much water. But we have to break that down as well to find out exactly how we want to put it out there. Right. And I know it's I know there are complications the PUC will talk about, but I mean, we, we certainly do it with frequently with electricity. Uh, I know electric systems are different than plumbing systems, but um, you know, it's it seems like it's something that at least theoretically we would make a lot of sense. Yes, it would. Okay, thank you very Go. much. Okay, um, are we back to the PUC now, or? Good afternoon. Uh, could I have the slides, please? I'm Paula Kehoe with the Manager of Water Resources with the San Francisco PUC. I have a bag of um, examples with me. 
Just waiting for the power, PowerPoint. Okay. Take your time. You're all set. You Great. Okay. Thanks. Oh, I get Okay. Um, so in addition to our uh, drought response actions, the San Francisco PUC is diversifying its water supply portfolio to ensure resilient and reliable water supply for today and in the future. We have a comprehensive water conservation program and are developing new local water supplies here in San Francisco. Our wide range of conservation services makes it easy and affordable for businesses and households to reduce water consumption. We offer free audits, educational materials, and plumbing devices, such as aerators and shower heads. So I brought some examples with me to share with you, as well as your constituents. We have a shower head. We talked earlier about a spray nozzle. These are the nozzles that we can give away for free to uh, residents and businesses in San Francisco. And so can you just go in terms of what is given away uh, for sure. free? We provide a, a spray nozzle. We also provide a shower head um, and aerators for both the bathroom and uh, the kitchen faucet. And then the, it says rest, the restaurant pre-rinse spray valve. Yes. And toilet leak detection tablets and repair kits. Yes. So that, I mean, I, I think a lot it would be, you know, I think what would be really useful, I, I think all 11 supervisors have newsletters that go out very, very extensively, maybe even to send around just a paragraph uh, to all the offices that we can put out to our constituents so that people know that this is totally free and will help them save water. Great. And we'd also love to provide samples that you could also have in your office to share as that well. That would be wonderful. Great. Thanks. And um, residents can come to our building, 525 Golden Gate, our customer service building, to pick up these uh, these fixtures. We also have um, folks can call us on our hotline number 415-551-4730 as well as going to our website at uh, waterconservation um, at sfwater.org for any of our services. So we have multiple ways to reach us. And can they be, will they be, do you mail to people too? Mail we don't mail the okay. devices. People need to up. come in and pick okay. them Thank up. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we also work with residents and businesses to assist them with using water efficiently with outdoor irrigation. Uh, we offer gardening classes, a residential gray water program, and starting in early 2015, we will resume our rain barrel and cistern program uh, for San Francisco residents to collect and use rainwater. We also offer our customers rebates for qualifying high-efficient uh, fixtures, such as toilets and clothes washers. Um, so, for example, a rebate for an old toilet, 3.5 gallons or more, uh, we will provide a rebate of up to $125. During the past year, we provided over 7,500 rebates. Uh, we offered, uh, we provided more than 27,000 water efficient fixtures, including the shower heads and aerators I just showed you to San Francisco residents and businesses. And our conservation team conducted over 4,000 water-wise evaluations to help San Franciscans be even more water efficient. Um, today, our residential per capita is 49 gallons of water per person per day. That's one of the lowest per capita rates in California. 
And in San Francisco, as we talked uh, earlier today, we have local legislation and building code requirements aimed at reducing water demands. As we mentioned earlier, we have the residential conservation ordinance that requires the installation of low flow fixtures, tap toilets and shower heads upon the resale or any major retrofit of residential properties. And then all commercial properties um, must comply with these requirements by 2017. We also have uh, the San Francisco Water Efficient Irrigation Ordinance, which requires any new or remodeled landscape over 1,000 square feet to install water-efficient landscaping and irrigation systems. However, as we talked today, conservation alone is not enough. Uh, we're developing new local water supplies in San Francisco. Um, this year, we broke ground on a groundwater construction project after more than a decade of research to ensure that we can safely and effectively diversify our supply without compromising our high-quality water. Uh, as Denny mentioned, we've partnered with Reckon Park to deliver recycled water to irrigate Harding Park Golf Course. During the past two years, we've saved over 150 million gallons of potable water. We just recently completed the Sharp Park Recycled Water Project, and we're proposing to build a recycled water plant at the Oceanside Treatment Plant to produce recycled water to irrigate Golden Gate Park, Lincoln Park Golf Course, and portions of the Presidio. And when will that be complete? We anticipate the completion to be 2018. And in, um, but looking further to expand our water supply portfolio, we've also turned our attention to non-traditional sources of water or alternate water sources as a means to develop new non-potable water supplies. We talk about alternate water sources. There's rainwater, gray water, stormwater, black water, and foundation drainage. So when it came to building our new headquarters, we incorporated the living machine to treat all of our gray water and black water in our building, and we used that treated water to flush our toilets and urinals within the building. During the past two years, we've reduced our potable water consumption by 65%, saving over 2.5 million gallons of potable water. And in order to encourage other buildings in San Francisco to collect, treat, and use alternate water sources, um, the Board of Supervisors uh, passed an ordinance last year uh, to allow the collection and treatment of uh, these alternate water sources. This program is implemented through a partnership with the San Francisco PUC, Department of Building Inspection, and Department of Public Health. And to date, we have over 20 projects proposing to collect and treat a variety of alternate water sources. The San Francisco PUC collects data on costs, drivers, and potable wa water offsets. And we've also established a grant program where we provide up to $250,000 for individual buildings and up to $500,000 for multiple buildings involved in sharing or selling water. I'm going to turn it back to Steve Ritchie, who's going to conclude. Thanks, Paula. Uh, yeah, we have a, a couple of more points to make. First, uh, talking about other possibilities out there. Uh, as Paula mentioned, we have 20 projects who are looking at using non-potable sources of water for alternative uses within their buildings. Uh, that's one possible area where we could explore more. Those people are doing it voluntarily because, you know, it looks like a good thing to do. Um, one uh, possibility is to have on-site reuse feasibility assessments requiring assessment of possible water savings associated with installation of on-site water reuse in new commercial and multifamily residential developments over a certain size. We have the tools 
tools to help make this happen, uh, and that would be one good possibility. Because uh, certainly we could certainly help educate developers about uh, the non-potable program that we're pushing forward and available funding that can assist developers uh, in implementing that. And then overall, uh, we are, of course, are always looking at more conservation. There, there's always a little bit more that you can do, not enough to really fulfill all the needs of the system. Uh, so we're looking at more recycled water as well as more conservation. Uh, but on larger fronts, uh, we're looking into new and innovative uh, uses. Water transfers uh, with other entities is a possibility, but when everybody's short, water transfers are hard to come by. Uh, desalination is something that is controversial to some extent, but uh, if we start to get through several dry years, what I would call a biblical drought, uh, that will become a very attractive option, as will the last item on the list, which is direct potable reuse of wastewater. Uh, that's a topic that in the water industry, uh, that, was, that was an untouchable for many years, but within the last five years, there's been a lot more serious conversation and research into the potential for directly reusing wastewater for drinking purposes. Uh, so we're involved in looking at all these things because we know that uh, as a progressive water agency, that's what you need to do. Direct. Uh, that means not coming from a recycled water plant, but rather just within your own home? Well, it would mean, no, that would be uh, coming from a recycled water plant, taking wastewater from, say, the Oceanside Water Pollution Control Plant, treating that to a very, very high level, and then putting it directly into the drinking water distribution system. So in terms of water recycling, um, where do you see us heading in the, in the next number of years? I mean, there, it seems like there are a lot of uh, challenges in terms of, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we're moving forward with Golden Gate Park and Harding Park, et cetera. Uh, but in terms of individual homes, um, there are a lot of challenges around the, I know, around the plumbing and having sort of separate plumbing systems in a way. Where do you see us going in terms of large-scale water recycling? Yeah. Um, I think uh, on, on large-scale, well, first of all, uh, individual homes we think is problematic. It, it's really hard to do on an individual home basis and know that reliably the plumbing is going to be installed and managed in a way that will protect public health. Uh, that's why uh, for our uh, you know, non-potable program, we focus on commercial and multifamily residential where you have a, a building manager with a building engineer that is managing all that. That together with good design and good testing is what will help protect public health because we really have to do that in the long run. Uh, so in terms of recycled water and ultimately, you know, making a big dent in water supplies, uh, the real two answers are, uh, at least in urban areas, indirect potable reuse where you treat it to a certain level the water spends send, spend six months in, in nature in some way and is blended with potable uh, water, uh, natural potable water, and then uh, used, or direct potable use, where you treat it to a much higher level and, again, you inject it directly into the drinking water system in any given community. And certainly, like I said, if, if it stays really dry for several years, I think that will be a serious consideration. And the direct potable reuse, is that being done anywhere right now? Uh, actually, it's being done in, in some different countries around the world, ones that have really, really severe water supplies. San Diego has been approaching it and, in fact, pushed for a state law that requires the State Water Resources Control Board to come up uh, with a feasibility assessment and draft regulations for what would be considered uh, acceptable for direct potable reuse. Those regulations are due within two years. Okay, great. And I know there's a psychological barrier uh, there around is. that, but... Um, I, I think that the, obviously in the end the science is going to have to govern. 
yeah, like I said, in the water industry, that was always the untouchable, but it's, it's, it's very approachable in conversation now. Great. And then in terms of um, uh, sub-metering or individually metering uh, units, I know that's uh, some of which we just discussed in mm -hmm. terms of the code challenges, and I know there are definitely challenges around uh, costs, uh, particularly in existing buildings, but, it, you know, especially in a place like San Francisco where, um, you know, largely people live in multi-unit uh, buildings, and uh, it, it, when you start imposing, let's say, a man the mandatory 10% or let's say it gets 20%, uh, it becomes very challenging to achieve that uh, when uh, it's one thing where you have a single-family home, you can easily monitor and, and uh, assess a penalty if, if appropriate. But in a multi-unit, there is absolutely no incentive if a, if a tenant or a condo owner just doesn't feel like doing or doesn't care. Uh, many do care, but not everyone. Um, there's no incentive for them to actually conserve. And it actually, it ends up putting uh, an HOA or a landlord in a very difficult position because then presumably the HOA will get fined or the landlord will get fined. Uh, and uh, even if they do have a way to pass through uh, those uh, fines, because right now in San Francisco, if the landlord gets penalized, um, even though the landlord has no control over water usage, mm -hmm. the landlord can't pass through uh, to the tenants uh, that penalty, and HOA presumably will in some way pass it through. But then you have some condo owners or, or tenants who are doing a beautiful job conserving, and then they're getting hit as well because the landlord or the HOA has no way of knowing who's conserving water and who's not. And so it's unfair, but it also doesn't achieve the goal of, in of incentivizing people uh, through uh, costs uh, to actually conserve water. So where, um, what can we do to move towards uh, creating those incentives for residents of multi-unit buildings? Um, you're, you're laying out a very difficult challenge you know, that, that the industry faces. Uh, my personal view on this is that, you know, technological advancements where you get a, a very simple enough, you know, device that you clap onto, you know, a, a single pipe that can tell you how much water is running through it to any, any little thing, that kind of technological leap forward, that would be the ideal solution to get us to that. And I think if Bright Minds put their effort that way, that would be one tool that could be really useful so that you don't have to mess with the plumbing more than just making a hole and clapping something on with the transmittal device on it. Um, beyond that, um, it, it is, I, I, I will acknowledge, it's extremely difficult to get there. On the other hand, when you look at San Francisco, uh, as Paula mentioned, the use is already 49 gallons per capita per day residential. We think that uh, based on, uh, you know, the, the conservation techniques that are out there, uh, if everybody was perfect or pretty close to perfect, you'd probably get down to maybe 35 gallons per capita per day. So San Francisco, even though there might be some people who are using more than their share, are doing a bang-up job already, and if pressed, probably can do more. A lot of that is replacement of fixtures. You know, that's really where we see the biggest bang for the buck. It's, it's not so much modification of behavior as just getting the old three-and-a-half and five-gallon toilets out. It's getting um, <clears throat> aerators on everything. All those individual actions really add up. Uh, so I, I personally have a very positive outlook about the, the performance of San Francisco citizens in terms of reducing water use. 
Yeah, and I, just to be clear, I think, mo I think most people in the city really care a lot about conservation and not suggesting that most people are, are, are wasting water. Um, but, you know, unfortunately not everyone, not everyone. Uh, is of the same uh, mindset. And we are uh, in San Francisco, I think, as you noted, much uh, we're ahead of the curve in terms of uh, per capita water usage. But uh, as, as we often do, San Francisco, and as the PUC has done uh, in many instances, we need to continue uh, to lead the way uh, okay. and and really set the best possible example for the rest of the state and the country. Um, so, but I know that the PC has taken a number of very uh, bold steps to move us in a good direction. I know uh, I'm very appreciative of the agency's leadership. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, terrific. Uh, colleagues, are there any questions for any of the city departments? Okay, uh, with that, that's, that concludes the presentation. I really appreciate uh, all, I think this has been extremely useful for me, I know, but I think also for the public because there are so many questions and uh, I think misunderstandings uh, at times. Uh, so with that, we will open up item number three for public comment. I have uh, one public comment card. I have one public comment card. Eric Brooks, uh, Mr. Brooks, if you'll come up. For, uh, no. Mr. Brooks, yeah. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Eric Brooks, representing San Francisco Green Party, local grassroots organization, Our City. I'm also on the um, San Francisco Bay Chapter Sierra Club uh, Water Committee. Uh, and just want to say, kind of want to reiterate uh, what uh, you led with, Chair Weiner, at the beginning of this, uh, that um, even though all these departments are doing some cool stuff to make things better, there are other, other cities like Los Angeles that are rocketing way ahead of us on their use of things like recycled water. Uh, it looks like, as they said, San Diego might go for full potable reuse. It's very crucial that we treat this just like energy. Uh, the climate crisis is going to make water a big deal, and that means we need to make the same sort of capital investment in the water system citywide, billions of dollars to completely radically change it. Uh, one really good example of something that's not being done right now that needs to be at least tested a few years ago, I got the SFPUC wastewater enterprise to study composting and, uh, toilets. And you'd think that that's a rural or a suburban thing, but it's not that way anymore. The new ones are, use, are very useful in an urban setting. And just to give you an example of how much water, if we switched every toilet in the city to a uh, non-flush and or, and or composting toilet use, that would save five billion, with a B, five billion gallons of water a year. Uh, that would make totally unnecessary the one thing that the SFPUC had on its list of options, which the environmental community roundly opposes, and that is putting desalination up with all these other strategies. Desalination requires higher amounts of energy and pollution than any other water strategy and should never be equal on a list like that. It should be a last resort. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Brooks. Next speaker. Again, good afternoon. Suwazo Scalvina. Suwazo Jane Kim. Suwazo Mary Cohen. As I listen to them, in the city, we have 10,000 heavenly girls of holy beauty and 10,000 heavenly uh, angel boys uh, of uh, good, good uh, guys, you know. So we have to ensure every one of them have a good proper, a living standard, 
along to the city standard, you know, not just a, a plain uh, life, so too much of plain life without much of a abundance, you know, like a relationship, a mankind relationship, and further, the marriage, uh, 30 years of, of uh, you know, uh, due to burden, they require lots of uh, city support. Is there any additional public comment on item three? Come on up. Good afternoon, Commission, uh, Supervisors. My name is Sean Kikrin, Residential Builders Association. And I'm glad that this topic is being discussed. Um, I'll share a quick story with you. 12-unit building that's unmetered uses about the same water as a 25-unit metered building. You get more than a 50% reduction. But here's the reality. This is what's going on in the real world. Even though it costs a lot more money to plumb mm -hmm. the buildings, our members are willing, and most developers are willing to at least try to do this. But here's what happens. Even though you spend the money plumbing the building, you have to go and buy a meter. Nobody will sell a meter to San Francisco anymore. The reason is because our county, our Department of Health, our weights and means has in, made an interpretation, and they're the only county in the, state of Cal, in the state of California to make this interpretation. But if the meter doesn't pass, they take out their drill and they destroy the meter. They don't hand it back to you and say, go bring us a new one. They destroy it. They put up every single obstacle possible to stop us from individually metering these buildings. Now, we've brought this issue up to the PUC in the past. Several months ago, we had a meeting, and we offered some very good, helpful suggestions. I suggest, to avoid all this confusion about weights and means and the certification of these meters, PUC should buy a couple hundred or a couple thousand every six months and let us buy them from them. We want good meters, but we shouldn't have to go through all these hoops and hurdles with the weights and measures in the PUC. They're the only county in the state that destroys our meters. And the only reason they have, the only reason we need them is because they've interpreted themselves as an HOA is selling water. We're yeah. not selling water, we're just reimbursing so Mr. King, first of all, when you said 12-unit uh, building uh, uses as much as a 25-unit building, if it's not metered, you mean sub-metered, individually metered per unit? Correct. The 12-unit unmetered. Not individually metered. Correct. Uses about the same as 25 okay. with individual meters. And in terms of that last point, could I get, um, I don't know if it's DBI or PC to comment on that? Uh, I'm not sure I, sure I fully understand that. Um, Mr. Pinelli is coming up, and Mr. Ritchie. Maybe it, actually, that's the first I'd heard of that. Maybe he's talking about submeters because they're not used for resale, so it's just for information purposes. So there may be an issue there, but that's the first I've ever heard of described that way. Mr. Pinelli, do you have any insight here? We've had where we've gone out for submeter buildings that people have installed part of their group and others and they put submeters in. The only way we will accept those submeters being installed is if they are done by weights and means to make sure that they comply and nothing's been tampered and everything's okay and we get a certification of that device that's installed. But it needs to be done yearly. What happens is if it's done yearly and it does fail, they will destroy that meter. That's Department of Public Health? Um, I don't know who goes it's out there. Department 
So with the yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and so that's won't. treated the same as a, a business that has, has you know, a, a scale that weighs meat on Correct. it? Correct. So if their scale is off, my dad used to own a deli. Um, so he used to go in and they'd, they'd come in, they measure it, they make sure it met everything. If it did not meet it, they had to comply. They'd check it. If it failed again, they would make them take it out and replace it. And do they do that for a group meter or a meter on a single family home? No, because they're not called in for that. Because they're not, it's not quote unquote reselling to an to an individual unit. That's correct. That that seems weird. How did, did that come about? Does that like an administrative interpretation by I, DPH? I do not know. I cannot answer that. That seems weird. Well, we'll we'll look into that. And Mr. Mr. Kagan, if you could connect with Jeff in my office on that, we'll we'll look into that. Thank you. And uh, Supervisor Cohen. Yeah. Thank you. I just wanted to uh, acknowledge also um, Sean's comments because I only heard these comments from um, from Mr. from Mr. Kegren, so I'm, I appreciate you uh, calling up uh, the department head to speak to it. So it sounds like it's pretty, um, um, the destroying of the meters is just a common practice, is a common practice that's universally done. No one industry is um, focused or, uh, or singled out, is that correct? Well, so it's treated the same as a scale in a, in a delicatessen, basically, or, uh, and I understand the Department of Public Health Goes out and does annual inspections and, and businesses pay fees to to make sure that uh, businesses are not cheating customers and having right. scales that are messed up. This seems like it might um, be in a little different category uh, than than that traditional um, uh, process. And so I, I we'll, we'll definitely take a look at that. That seems sort of odd. So one more, one more thing that I, the way I understand the situation is, is that the, when the scale, if the scale doesn't pass the inspection, it's destroyed. What I understand is, is that um, certain contractors would be interested in having the scale given back to them and, and then you have an opportunity to return it to the company that you purchased it from. Is that correct? Therefore being able to recoup something. <coughs> Can you just offer some clarification, Mr. Kagan, on exactly? we got here you see it causes a big problem because if I buy 40 meters mm -hmm. and I and they and let's say five don't pass if I can send them back to the manufacturer and replace them with five new ones then I don't really mind but the weights and means has a very unusual calibration methodology mm -hmm. and none of the companies that sell the meters Delta utility solutions was the company that our members were we're gravitating towards, but they won't sell to San Francisco anymore. They'll sell to San Mateo, they'll sell up north, they'll sell in the East Bay, but they're so fed up of dealing with weights and means in our Department of Health, they've just thrown their hands and you can't even buy them anymore. But one could also interpret that Delta may be selling an inferior product and refuse to sell here because it might it, have I think, a I think he's a broker. He, he can buy from several different manufacturers. He doesn't care which manufacturer he sells you. But because the, the calibration system is so unique in San Francisco, they, may, they, they, they do their best for you not to can, do this. Can you tell me what makes it so unique? They don't want you to do it. They don't want you to? Install the submeters. So is there, is there um, an opportunity for you? I, I, I was called in there, and, and the reason I was, the best explanation I can interpret was that she said that I'm a landlord and I'm she trying from, to, I mean, like, was that a department there were so many or? from the Weights and Means. They okay. said that I'm a landlord and I'm trying to somehow pass this on to a tenant. I said, I'm not a landlord. I'm here representing a developer mm -hmm. who's trying to put this in a new condominium building. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with landlord-tenant issues. Mm -hmm. This has to do with water conservation. Mm -hmm. They would not 
Every, every, there was roadblocks everywhere. So it sounds like we may have to just um, revisit this particular policy. There might be. Weights and means gets involved in gas station pumps because someone is making a profit off of something being sold to the public. In the case of an HOA, they're really just redistributing the cost of water. There's no profit. There's no markup. There's, do we, it's, it's such a different world. Okay. How long is this? policy or situation going on? I've been aware of it for about a year, year and a half now. So is this something, was this a new policy that's been put in place? Uh, probably going back two, two and a half years. So relatively new. This whole thing about water is really fresh. It's, it's two, three years old, that's all. Okay, so I'm going to um, let the hearing go ahead and continue. Supervisor Kim has a couple of questions, but I think that there might be an opportunity here yeah. to clean up some policy. This has been a source of frustration for us for a while. Granted, it's only one side that we've heard. Your Absolutely. side, I'm sure, the Department yeah. of Health and specifically but, the way and the means the folks day, have. It's all about finding a solution. And, and if, if, okay. if the city work can get that. these, it's better. Thank you. Yeah, I think the bottom line is there, there are so many obstacles already to individual metering. We want to make sure that we don't have unnecessary obstacles. Supervisor Kim. I think my line of questioning was pretty similar to the questions that um, both the supervisors asked. I, I think at minimum we shouldn't be destroying meters. I, I find that a bit absurd <laughs> and a little shocking to hear that we destroy property. Um, whether it's accurate or not, I think at minimum we should be returning them. But I would like to clear up that policy because I think it does make sense that we allow HOAs and large buildings to um, figure out how to conserve water and how to hold you know, individual units um, <laughs> accountable to that. I think it's very hard when you're in a multi-unit building and it's hard to tell, even for um, a tenant that wants to conserve water, they may not know what their usage is. So I, I think we should definitely um, look into that policy and also not be destroying property, whether it's you know, the right meters or not. Thank you. And so my, my office will, will, will talk to the Department of Public Health and get to the bottom of this, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll let you all know what, what we find out. Thank so you. colleagues, thank you for, uh, for that. Um, is there any additional public comment on item number three? Okay, seeing none, public comment is closed. Uh, so, uh, colleagues, I want to thank you and also thank you to the departments and members of the public uh, for this hearing. I, I think as much as we all know that we're in a drought, as much as we see it on the news and in the paper, I think as today's hearing uh, showed, this is, this is an emerging and a growing issue. We don't know when this drought is going to be over. Uh, and uh, even if uh, we happen to get uh, some rain this winter, uh, you know, we need to be prepared for, um, for short-term and long-term uh, uh, situations where we have to seriously conserve water, where we have to do things differently, and where we need to make sure that our codes and our practices are actually consistent with um, the potential, really, a crisis and a potentially growing crisis that we uh, face. And, and again, San Francisco needs to be at the forefront. We don't want to let other uh, cities or parts of the country uh, leap ahead of us because we should be leading the way. Uh, so colleagues, if there are no additional comments, um, I'd uh, entertain a motion to uh, continue uh, this item to the call of the chair. Please. Yes. Okay. And without objection, that will be the order. Thank you. Uh, Madam Clerk, will you please call item number two? Item number two is an ordinance amending the health code for ventilation requirements for the urban infill 
development and establishing fees. Okay, and Supervisor Cohen is the author of item two. Yes, thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I um, want to thank you all for coming to hear this item today. There are areas in San Francisco, uh, particularly in the southeastern neighborhoods, that suffer disproportionately from environmental impacts such as traffic, um, freeway traffic, industrial activities, and significant amounts of construction activity. We know that the exposure to particulate matter, uh, such as diesel emissions, can lead to chronic health problems that uh, people living closer to these emitters, um, such as freeways and construction sites, are the most vulnerable. As a city, we're also ag aggressively developing formerly industrial areas and brownfield sites with new housing, commercial space, as well as open parks. And to begin to address some of these challenges and these impacts, I've been working with the Department of Public Health and the Planning Department on two ordinances that will strengthen our regulation of construction and new housing developments to ensure that we are protecting the public's health. Now, ordinance that you are considering today updates our landmark um, Article 38 of the Health Code to require developers who are retrofitting a building or uh, new housing in an air quality hot zone, hot spot zone, to install enhanced ventilation systems to ensure that the residents are receiving clean air in their units. Now, this ordinance will streamline the process for project sponsors by clearly identifying the areas uh, in the city where we know that these enhanced measures are most needed. I've heard some concerns from uh, members of the development community about the cost associated with implementing various technologies and a desire to have a process in place um, that, that, that ensures that they can develop measures to implement these types of requirements. Now, to that end, colleagues, I have one amendment that I would like to introduce to you today that requires the Department of Public Health the Department of Building and Inspection, and the Fire Department to work with interested parties to review and evaluate uh, possible technologies and policies that may be implemented to meet these requirements. This amendment will also require the Department to transmit a report to the Board of Supervisors within 120 days to the operative date of this ordinance that details where they are in the implementation process. Now, I don't think we have a disagreement on the spirit or the policy issue here. What we have is a desire to ensure that the policy is implemented and implemented well. The legislation is part of an overall strategy to keep residents of the city, and particularly those that suffer disproportionately from the wide range of environmental health issues. Uh, I've been focused on the health impacts of poverty, violence, land use, and many other issues um, that particularly affect the southeastern neighborhoods. Now, whether we are taxing sugary sweetened beverages or building uh, a new youth clinic or bringing more resources to the district, I've really have been focused on, on comprehensively addressing the health impacts of our residents experience, experiencing from a variety of sources, um, including the neighborhoods that they live in. Now, District 10, it's no secret, is experiencing an exceptional amount of construction now, and now is the time to ensure that, this new, that the new housing and construction is utilizing the best technologies possible to protect the public health and safety of our residents. Now, there are real environmental injustices in our neighborhood that we must, and we must really begin to use every tool available to us to ensure that our residents are healthy and safe. 
And at this time, I'd like to call up uh, Karen Cohn from the Department of Public Health. She'll be followed by Wade from the Planning Department. I want to give them an opportunity to present on this topic. Thanks for joining us today, Karen. Thank you so much, um, Chairman Weiner and Supervisors. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, my name is Karen Cohn. I'm from the Environmental Health Branch of uh, Public Health Department, Population Health Division. Um, Supervisor Cohn's amendment to update Health Code Article 38 is really to help promote a more efficient process for urban infill development. Right now, uh, the people who are doing the great job of, of helping us have new housing have to um, meet with the needs of the Health Department, Article 38, and also with the needs of the Planning Department's CEQA process. That's been duplicative for them. It has slightly different um, requirements as now written, and our draft began with that goal in mind, to bring them to be compatible. And by doing so, we would be saving developers about a half to a third of their costs. Um, as the technology that um, is, has become more available to protect residents, we feel it's our duty to bring those forward. Um, secondly, we have a duty to help to our regulated community, as the supervisor has just said. We want them to be confident in their ability to meet these goals. So you may have seen this newspaper article on the day that Supervisor Cohn introduced this legislation. Go overhead, please. There we go. So this is, oops, my coworker, um, lives in a, a condo building on Berry Street. And it's a beautiful tree-lined street. And what I've learned through this is that we don't often perceive air pollution. Um, because of the drought we've all been talking about, we have to wait for the spare the air days for us to actually perceive the accumulation of air pollution. And as you know, those have been much more frequent in this year. But once you... Um, Go to my colleague's apartment. You'll see that the normal building style used has been called a Z-duct, which prevents noise from coming into the building but allows for fresh outside air to come into the building. And because he works in my department, he knows that um, there could be a degree of pollution due to his proximity to the train station. And so he began to buy allergen-type filters and put them over these openings. And then that's delivered to his, the inside of his apartment, and he puts a filter there as well, which I'm going to share with you. Um, he needs to change those every two months. And what, what those are doing is they're preventing the very largest particles from entering his home. And I've been using these as part of my um, display all year long and doing these speaking engagements. And, and even though I've visited his home more than once, each time I see that, I'm a bit shocked because he has a very clean place that he maintains. But um, he, most of the, his neighbors are not doing this. And they, they see the soot on, his, on their outside furniture, they see their plants dying from, from soot. Um, uh, on the back, the reporter had him touch his balcony prior to, um, you know, just to say what, what it's like. And I think after we're, you know, we're expecting to live in a, a healthy environment and people are paying their rents, paying their mortgages, and 
we have the ability to build it differently than this. And so that, that's what the purpose of our, our legislation is. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time. I've given you a handout that talks about health issues. Um, we're really all very familiar about uh, asthma, respiratory issues. In 2008, when this legislation was passed, I testified on behalf of the Asthma Task Force, and there were, were uh, several research articles out right at that time to talk about the new onset of asthma as caused by air pollution. Uh, there's been a 10-year study of children's health, and besides asthma, there's been a, a decrease in lung volumes that has been documented in the Los Angeles area where children's lungs will never grow to their full size that they should have. Um, we are not a Los Angeles as yet, and um, our goal is to not, not become that. So uh, right now the new evidence in the health literature is that um, particles cause inflammation related to heart disease and that there's actually a, a biomarker of C-reactive protein that we can see in response to air pollution exposure. There was just a 3,000-person study done that um, California State Agency published. So now I'm just going to show you the, the overlap between the area that is proposed to be the air pollution exposure zone under this amendment and our hospitalizations for heart-related disease. And um, you can clearly see the north, north and south of Market, the Financial District, the Bayview. These are our highest areas. Um, I have another uh, guest speaker here today from the Air Quality District who helped us do the mapping that produced this. And um, Treasure Island also has had an excess of hospitalizations in the data. So. We know from the research literature that um, air pollution does cause both respiratory and cardiovascular effects. We know that heart-related effects cause uh, are among the five top leading causes of death in San Francisco. So this is a contributor, probably a, somewhat of an invisible contributor. And um, our goal, of course, is to do the best that we can to protect public health. So. To, to briefly review, if you don't know Article 38, right now a developer um, goes to the planning department, their lot is identified as being in a potential roadway exposure zone. If that's the case, they need to model how much pollution um, of particle pollution would occur using um, the professional modeling community or the health department to do that modeling. And if it's, the criteria is exceeded, they have to provide enhanced ventilation that reduces 80% of that exposure. Um, it only applies to developments of 10 units or more. It does not apply to uh, residences less than 10 units, schools, daycare, adult, senior care, any of those other sensitive receptors. It only applies to the pollution caused by roadways. Our proposal um, is to change that to this air pollutant exposure zone map. There has um, been, a, since 2008, many improvements in how modeling is done, and we have proposed that the department be the dictate of what is in this zone, rather than having many different companies doing their own modelings, where we have to then spend their money to validate each one of their models. This would be an obligation of the department every five years. We would include all sources that are known, which are the stationary sources permitted by the Air District, the area sources that also have individual permits, such as the train and port properties, 
and the roadways. There are two criteria for getting into this map. There's the excess of particle pollution and there's the excess of carcinogen pollution. Either one would qualify a lot to become part of this zone. I have a quick question. Yes. This legislation, it actually goes on for new construction. Um, but what about public housing? Because they're also in this um, zone of uh, ex the exposure zone. How can we begin to help them as well in terms of the public housing? The existing housing existing stock? Existing housing, yes. I don't believe that much of the existing housing stock has any type of centralized air supply system. They don't have a, um, it wasn't built to the standards of today where a makeup air supply is brought in. Maybe the high rise housing would have that, but the other low rise housing only, I mean, was built at a time when operable windows were allowed to be the makeup air supply. Okay. So, so they don't have that built in mechanical as yet. All right, that's good to know. Now we have uh, broken ground, uh, we finished phase one and we're on phase two for Hunter's View. Yes. And that is new development. This development, is it subject to, would it be subject to this? Uh, Under its CEQA mitigation measures? I believe so. Yes, so yes. it has been required to be at the same standard. Okay. The larger projects, as they've gone through planning, the CEQA process has required mitigation measures that will bring them to this standard. Right. Thank you. Yes. Um, so, oh. go ahead. Kim. Oh. Actually, were you done with your presentation? I have a few other things to say, but I think it's fine to okay. have your questions go, go on as well. That's okay. So um, we've also included elevated freeways, and I just wanted to give you an idea of why. <laughs> so um, uh, so this is 280, an elevated freeway, a muni bus yard, and somebody's air intake right here. So. Uh, Pre previous to this, um, the assumptions about the heights were actually not including this type of property, and now they are. Uh, so I want to tell you what's been accomplished to date. There's been, a, since the law was passed, 106 properties mm -hmm. that have been um, screened under the roadway map, and 38% of them required enhanced ventilation. Um, 32 of those just happened in the past year and a half because of our economy being so booming. And um, we've changed our administrative process. The turnaround is within a day or two. Uh, people are generally happy about that. Uh, and we've already offered people the option to comply with this proposed amendment. So some people have chosen to do that. Um, just to give you an idea about what the filter is, the filter is called MERV 13. And it's going to remove particles at the small size that we're concerned about, PM 2.5. I just want to let you know that there have been studies here that have substantiated what the health benefits are from that, both observational studies and modeling studies. The one I want to mention is in Finland, where the air that they were studying is slightly cleaner than our background air. And they showed that by putting the same type of filtration that we're requiring, they would have a 27% reduction in exposures and premature deaths. They projected that to the whole population of Europe, and um, their study implied that 27,000 to 100,000 deaths per year would be prevented. Oh. So it, it's, this is a chance for us to be pioneers. Um, 
All of the research shows that the health-related economic benefits far exceed the costs. Um, and I just want to mention what this amendment that Supervisor Cohn introduced today. I clearly view that it's our job as regulators to make our regulated community successful at the work they do. The work they do is very important, and that is increasing our housing supply. Our um, lack of housing has many adverse health outcomes. It's, it's very much in our interest to make them successful at what they're doing. We're fully committed to, to helping them do that. Uh, we would continue to work with our agency partners and our stakeholders to keep exploring technologies that work um, so that we can all mutually achieve our goals. It's, it's um, definitely part of our responsibility to make that available to our regulated community and to the public. So I appreciate the amendment that was offered. Thank you very much. Any other questions? Yeah. Okay, Supervisor Kim. Yeah, first of all, I, I want to thank Supervisor Cohen for working on this really important legislation. It is something that, you know, actually our residents in District 6 are quite concerned about, particularly in the South Beach, um, Rincon Hill neighborhoods by the freeways, although it was really important, uh, good for me to see the data and how it impacted the entire South of Market and the Tenderloin as well. You might as well have colored entire District 6. Um, and I know that... Um, it, it comes up often with our residents. Um, and actually, it's the same for my house as well. The windows that I leave open, you can see a layer of black dust that collects over time. And the windows that I don't leave open, the sill is completely white. Um, so you, you can physically see kind of the air pollutants that come from living near uh, a freeway. So I'm really glad that we're moving this forward. I know that this is for new buildings and for buildings that are doing major alteration or change of use. I'm curious, how does this impact um, buildings that are going up currently? Um, because I, I know that this is just, it continues to become a growing concern amongst yeah. our residents. And I want to make sure that our residents that are moving into the district, you know, have you know, the highest level of protection possible um, from, you know, the neighborhoods. Certainly. Well, we're in a, a difficult transition in that mm -hmm. many places got their permits to right. build prior to 2008. Okay. So with those properties, um, they're not necessarily beholden to Article 38. They may have re been required to do CEQA mitigation, mm -hmm. or they may mm -hmm. not have. And so it's been a case-by-case. -case. That has brought us to a variance process as well, and the this new amendment also requires the department to create a set of rules and regulations about how we would conduct a variance process. Mm -hmm. And up until now, it's just been one negotiated at a time, so that will make it more consistent. And what can we offer to our existing residents, um, particularly in our large buildings um, that have lived, you know, buildings that have been built for quite a bit of time pre-2008? Um, it won't be required to comply under this legislation unless they're doing a major alteration. Um, is, there, is there something that we can offer to them in terms of process if, for example, the HOA or the developer was voluntarily willing to comply with these new standards? Uh, there would be no problem working with an, an agency to give them that sort of consultation. That would be great. I right. would love to sit down again on this issue um, and see what we can do for some of our existing large buildings. Um, I know that some of our residents are very interested in something like this, and I would also like to add my name as a co-sponsor. But I really appreciate well, that's um, very wonderful the work and there are... that the DPH is doing around this because we are growing our neighborhoods really close to our major um, freeways um, because that's where we have the vacant parcels and so. I think that we have to do what we can beyond other types of policy measures that we can take um, to make these buildings as, as safe as possible. 
We have been doing visits with our developer colleagues so that we would understand their language as much as we're asking them to understand ours. And so we did visit a property that was built um, with the capability of being at this standard, but as yet was not using those type of filters. And so it is possible to upgrade filters up to a certain point based on the fan size. And that would be the easiest way to start advising some buildings. Thank you. Great, Supervisor Cohen. Okay. Uh, any additional presentation? Yeah, yes, okay, I have a short statement from Wade Whitgriff at uh, Planning and also from um, Phil Martian of the Air Quality District. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chair Wiener, members of the committee. Oh. And Cal Broomhead from Department of Environment. <laughs> um, I'm Wade Wickruff from the Planning Department staff. Joining me is Jessica Range from Planning Department staff as well. I'm going to be very brief as we've been partnering with and supporting the Department of Public Health on this effort over the last two years. And so Karen provided a really accurate representation of the issues that we're trying to solve. Um, the ordinance before you is about protecting the public's health while providing more certainty to the development review process. Um, the, the ordinance introduced by Supervisor Cohen would achieve this by aligning city law with mitigation measures imposed on projects subject to the California Environmental Quality Act, which requires us to impose essentially these Article 38 requirements as mitigation measures. And if we adopt this, uh, the proposed amendments, we would no longer have to impose this through mitigation. Instead, it would be codified in city regulations. So uh, the Planning Commission recommended 7-0 that the Board of Supervisors adopt the proposed amendments on September 18th, 2014. Um, I really have nothing else to present other than if you have additional questions, I'd be happy to ask, ask them. Okay, thank you very much. Proceed to the next presenter. Or further going? Okay, Phil Martin, Air Quality District. Hi, good afternoon, members of the committee. I'll, I'll be brief also. My name is Phil Martin. I'm here representing the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, where I'm a manager of our Community Air Risk Evaluation Program, or CARE program. Um, the Air District is a strong supporter of Article 38 and, and the updates and amendments that, that you've just heard about today. Um, we've been working closely with your planning department and your public health department in um, updating these air pollution exposure zones, which are a, a, a technical underpinning or the foundation, if you will, of uh, the amendments. And, and just to give you a little bit of background, the, the work that we did used the latest data sets and the latest modeling um, tools available uh, to define these air pollution exposure zones. Um, and so, so we, we think there's been a very innovative partnership between um, the Air District and the Health Department and the Planning Departments in, in developing um, these updates and, and the maps that you see. So in general, the Air District uh, supports infill development, as, as I know the city does. Um, it reduces re regional air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. It pres preserves green space and it promotes public transportation, all things that are good for regional air quality. Uh, but it is critical to bear in mind, as I, I know you have been, that infill can also potentially um, increase exposures to sensitive populations um, by bringing people closer to air pollution sources such as busy roadways. 
Um, and the, the work that Article 38 really is innovative uh, within the region and throughout the state um, in terms of helping to make infill safer and to um, promote healthy infill, uh, in part by developing uh, these maps of potential areas of concern and in part by having some concrete uh, options for developers to follow. Um, so the amendments uh, provide uh, developers with a predictable, well-defined process. We see that as one of the strengths, and uh, we commend your staff on their work. The proposed amendments, I think, serve as an example for what's possible for, for the Bay Area region and, and beyond that, and uh, we urge that you support these amendments and look forward to their consideration at the full board. I did want to just point out um, that the issue of you know what to do about existing housing is an important one. We are partnering with your health department and with the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory doing a, a study looking at what kinds of options are available for retrofitting existing housing. So I just wanted to make you aware that we're thinking about that as, as well as uh, your staff thinking about that issue. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you. We have Cal Broomhead from Department of the Environment, and my colleague is also here from Building Inspection, James Zahn, for a mechanical review, if you have any questions for him. Great. Uh, Cal Broomhead. I'm the Climate and Energy Programs Manager at the Department of Environment, and uh, we very much support this uh, uh, this law, this proposal, and I just wanted to add a comment about uh, existing multifamily buildings that we currently have an energy efficiency program through the Bay Area Regional Energy Network that targets multifamily buildings. Uh, air tightening of the shell, uh, particularly in high-rise multifamily, you get a lot of stack effect so that you end up pulling in air through the various infiltrations of windows and cracks in the building and in the flooring, doorways, et cetera, that come in, that are driven into uh, lower floors, um, drawing in the outside air from that from the the outside uh, of the lower floors and drawing it up into the uh, interior of the building so we we do have a program that's in place that can help with this a little bit uh, it's a it's a small program and we're going to need to get further funding from the California Public Utilities Commission to expand that to meet this kind of need the other thing is we're very interested in addressing existing buildings we're currently looking at an update of the residential energy conservation ordinance which is a time of sale ordinance and uh, we'll consider uh, air tightening and uh, mechanical ventilation particularly in these zones as a, as a possibility for um, um, for the amendment. We'll come back to you at a later date about that. Thank you. Thanks. Any additional departmental presentation? Um, I don't think so. Maybe DBI, maybe why don't you just come share a couple words with us so we can round out this, this item. My name is James Zahn. I am the uh, uh, head mechanical engineer uh, in the plan check division of uh, DBI. Uh, once this article enhanced, uh, updated Article 38 passed, that uh, would represent a uh, most likely added uh, permitting time, and uh, if that is further uh, expanded to existing building, uh, we uh, uh, estimate that will uh, uh, add additional spe uh, steps in the permitting process, uh, which um, may cause some concerns from the uh, 
building uh, uh, industry. And also, um, the enhanced mechanical ventilation system will also add a uh, uh, mechanical engineering requirement in the mechanical ventilation system. Um, I think we should uh, take into account uh, about these factors when we consider the legislature, especially during this building boom time, um, we constantly feeling pressures from all stakeholders to get the uh, permit out in a timely fashion. So uh, uh, I hope the, uh, the board can consider that as well. Great, thank you. Great. Okay, at this point we will move to public comment. Yes, please. And um, you, uh, public comment will be two minutes. Do we have any public comment cards? Good evening again, Swanson. Uh, uh, oh. Can you please step back? I haven't called cards yet. Let me call okay. cards. Thank you. Phil, Mart Phil Martin. Okay, already. So I'm sorry. And then uh, Mark Belinsky. And then Azabuki Akaba. Dr. Raymond Tompkins and Marie Harrison. Good afternoon, uh, Chair Wiener and other committee members. My name is Mark Belinsky, and I run a technology company named Birdie, whose mission is to save lives and make people healthier. We moved headquarters to San Francisco from New York City due to incredible benefits of being centered in a city like this, including the impact on us and our loved ones, being environmentally progressive, and overall quality of life. I live on one of the busiest intersections of San Francisco at 10th and Market. It is a self-described design-driven San Francisco lifestyle pioneer. I see the opportunity to add the word healthy to its marketing. I commute to work around the city on bicycle to limit my own carbon environmental footprint, knowing the inevitable cost of the city and the state, as well as to the health and wealth of future generations. However, I look out of my window and see a flood of cars going by every day. The health impacts to myself, my loved ones, and friends in my home are unknown, but as I see cars rolling by and their exhaust flooding into the windows, I fear the worst. Sick building syndrome is real, and none of us want to move to a city where our buildings are making us sicker. But marketing good ventilation and air quality can put buildings like mine at a strategic business advantage. My company, Birdie, makes a smart smoke alarm that also tracks air pollution. We've recently been bestowed the honor of being entrepreneurs in residence for the city of San Francisco through the Mayor's Office of Innovation. We've been proud to take this responsibility and explore how our company can positively impact the health of San Franciscans, in part by monitoring the air quality through intelligent sensors we have created and understanding how we can influence citizens to change their own behavior. Our technology has recently won a string of awards. Despite the beautiful weather that we see outside, our technology shows that the air quality is a mere 58, which is only moderate. People with particular sensitivities, such as growing number of citizens with asthma, should take precautions. And we are, in fact, developing technology to help citizens take matters into their own hands. If the air quality outside is better than indoors, we can help advise them to open a window. If it's worse, we can advise them to close it and perhaps turn on a fan or humidifier. Um, this is why I'm here today to ask for articles. Thank you very much. Uh, next speaker uh, I, of the cards I called. Good afternoon. My name's um, 
Azibuke Akaba. I'm with the uh, Public Health Institute and the Regional Asthma Management and Prevention Project. And so we represent different constituents that are concerned with asthma and air quality and also public health and land use planning. So we encourage and support this Article 38 and the amendments. And I was really encouraged to hear the commissioner's concern about existing communities because we see the growth in the Bay Area going above a million people in the next 20 years. And we think that growth um, concentration should be looking at the air quality as well as the cars. And we'd like to see um, a task force maybe formed um, like what UC Berkeley and the Department of Public Health and Planning and um, offering uh, resources and strategies from the Public Health Institute to support um, investigating how we can uh, implement protective measures and strategies and technologies for existing communities, especially low-income communities and communities of color that are impacted disproportionately um, in terms of asthma and poor air quality. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, next speaker of the cards that I called. Uh, the clerk will help you with that. On this side? Yes, technology ain't working just yet. Thank you, commissioners. Supervisors, I'm sorry. Uh, may I please ask for an extension due to the technical matter that I uh, will be addressing uh, the supervisors of at least one minute more because some of the references in terms of the research I participated in. Just and proceed, and if a supervisor has a question for you at the end of your two minutes, you'll have more time. Okay. Now, before I start, get clarity on the matter of an operational definition that was used in the statements from the supervisors in terms of the word stakeholders. Are the stakeholders defined as the residents of the communities that are affected? Yes. Or is it just the corporate side? No, it's the residents. Okay. In the document here, which was dated Oh, first, I'm Dr. Raymond Tompkins, and I am the environmental health co uh, consultant for the African-American Health Equity Council, acronym Archie. On the document of March 14th, Archie has been involved in environmental health 
discussions with the Air District also, and I'm working with them on possible research for the future, and with the Health Department over several years. I've been engaged in environmental science for 44 years. I've taught at different universities, San Francisco State, UC Berkeley, Department of Chemistry, Environmental Engineering. We were told by the Health Department that we would be engaged in the process of developing Article 38. In this particular document, we were never engaged in any of this. It was almost like a stepchild. We'll, we know what's best for you. In science, when you do empirical and anecdotal evidence, you come out with a better diagnosis for the patient. We're concerned at the current, oh, Jesus. Please look at the uh, chart on the uh, meter there. This is an air study that we did back in 98. Dr. Palmer, who did the analysis on the Soviet space station, we used the same equipment to use the measurements of VOCs in Baby Hunters Point. As you can see, one in a million is a risk factor. We measured this at one at 10,000 at the ground level that the children play at. At Carver Elementary School, the asthma rates in 98 were 55% of the first graders. In 2008, 85% of the babies are asthmatic. So let me, let me just streamline this. You don't have a lot of time to make a presentation. How does this relate to the legislation that we're discussing we're today? We're asking that, one, the legislation does not help the current population in the current house market that you discussed earlier, Supervisor Cohen and Supervisor Kim, and that we need for the health department and other regulators to sit down with the community and try and develop a better policy that will change the life outcomes. Because right now, life expectancy for a resident, African-American male in Bayview Hunters Point, is 56 years as defined by the Health and Human Services. Life expectancy for a white male living in San Francisco is 78. The same sad situation is true for African-American women living in Bayview. At one point, it was thought to be the highest breast cancer rate in the world. The, unfortunately, with African-American women having the same job, same insurance, all the other variables on equal scale, the mortality rate for African-American women living in Bayview is 77% higher. It is a health crisis, and it is imperative that the children and the adults, since I'm a senior now, and I also suffer from asthma, and I'm allergic to the pollution in the air. They can't identify what chemicals that we have. Look at the market of housing right okay, now and not for the future. All right. I don't want to give you an inch and you stay up and take a mile. Thank you for the time. No problem. But what I would like you to do is to talk to Karen from the, um, from the Department of Public Health. Um, also, we're working on... Um, we're working on a strategy to uh, address some of the concerns that you laid out for existing buildings. Because we do recognize the same, we, and we share the same concerns. And that we hope that at another time that our proposals from Archie may be considered by the Board of Supervisors, because one of the issues we see is current compliancy of the laws that are on the book are not applied in our neighborhood. Sure. If you could make that report available to each one of the members on this committee, that would be helpful. I would be honored to do so. Thank, Thank you. you. Karen, please talk to Dr. Tompkins. Thank you. Next speaker. Good afternoon, supervisors. My name is Marie Harrison. I actually have the distinction of actually living in Bayview Hunters Point and on one of the, right off of the corridor of one of those really super busy streets. And uh, 
just real briefly, Bayview Hunters Point is the only place in San Francisco where both major freeways intersect. The train uh, has a regular truck route uh, for uh, materials, toxic materials coming in and going off of the shipyard during their, their process of cleanup. And living on a block where this past year five, five men alone on my block died from different cancers. The block uh, across from me going backwards toward the, uh, uh, going back across Third Street on the other end, there are two, four, six, there are six different women, six different households where the major women in those households have breast cancer. So, I guess my concern with this whole process is that I'm, I'm liking the idea that everybody's acknowledging that the existing households are not being addressed properly. What I haven't seen is how this legislation is going to address those issues. I need to see how those uh, households, those schools around where all of this building is going to be taking place and where it has been taking place. This has been my concern with the health department as well as the air district as well as Department of the Environment for years. Stop adding all of these additional recommendations for housing that doesn't include existing housing. And don't make us second. I happen to live in a very old house. I enjoy my house. I love my house. Unfortunately, every time I open up the windows, and many times when I don't open up my windows, my windowsills get extremely, extremely dirty. And I think I stay on one of the best areas of all because I stay on the garden block, but I'm still getting the influx of pollutants and, and stuff. I had to eventually this year move my grandson out of the household because of his asthma. He got rid of it. For a few minutes, now it's back again. So you haven't actually taken enough time to look at what's happening to the existing residents, and we're there to help. I, I'm really disappointed that you haven't asked us for what our recommendations on this would be. Is there any additional public comments? Okay. Again, good evening, Suwaza Scalvina. Suwaza Jane Kim and Suwaza Ray Cohen. Ah, Suwaza, how are you? I mean, uh, I live in the uh, other side of the city, El Cerrito. I have my own residence, two floors. See, I live on the upper floor. Of course, uh, I feel best to sleep, uh, you know, uh, for variation. See, also on the next block, I have a Buddhist Stars Temple. I have my key to, to from over myself. I go in at late night to uh, you know, practice my meditation there, and just uh, also sleep on a bed, uh, sofa on a temple. See, certain people are lucky like me, you know, we're lucky. However, uh, we see a certain uh, limitation by our destiny, like other area. For me, I'm single, you know, I'm single, single and no wife, you no. Know. So I have to adjust my uh, self uh, life so, you no. Know. Last week I said to you, as far as everyone you know, uh, uh, I mean, a uh, wise guy, to stay single, <coughs> if possible, without getting marriage, for 30 years of due burden, unless your destiny push you to commit such. See? Oh, 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 yeah, is there any, actually, before we, um, we need to complete public comment. Is there any additional public comment? Good afternoon again, Supervisors. Eric Brooks, I'm the Sustainability Chair for San Francisco Green Party. I'm also coordinator for our city, San Francisco. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I'm also a District 6 resident uh, living off the Geary and Larkin area. 
Uh, and even though my window does not face the major uh, traffic corridor, I get the same black set on my windowsills, builds up very quickly. Um, with regard to, and I live in a very old building, and, and that really, I'd like to just reiterate what previous speakers said about existing buildings and what you have said about existing buildings, especially public housing. Uh, I think that the way you might be able to approach what uh, other speakers have asked for is to use the amendment that you've added to this legislation and maybe even tweak it a little before it reaches the board. I don't know if it reaches it tomorrow. But use that amendment uh, to have the studies that are done also include public housing and existing housing. And most importantly, uh, because of Treasure Island and the Bayview-Hunters Point area, because we know that there are asbestos fibers, because we know there are radioactive materials, make sure that you're including all the possible pollutants. Also, another thing that hasn't been mentioned is that it sounded from the staff testimony like they're filtering for large particulates, but actually smaller particulates from diesel exhaust uh, get deeper into the lungs and cause just as much or more problems. And then finally, I think something that's really crucial that I'll bet is not being considered and should probably be included in this uh, communication about the amendments with staff is the mold problem that we have on Treasure Island in the, in, in the southeast side. Uh, make sure that they're studying mitigation measures, you know, humidity, things like that, so that we target also the serious problem that we have with mold in these areas. Otherwise, we're not being comprehensive. Thanks. Thank you. Um, well, we need to finish public comment first, then we'll get back to the departments. Mr. Kegren? Good afternoon, Supervisors. Sean Kigren, RBA. Uh, initially, we had some concerns about this legislation. Um, there was cost, there was other confusions, um, and um, we, had, we, had, we were very concerned. And at the urging of the Building Commission, um, we were asked to sit down and meet with the um, Department of Health. We wanted to understand the impacts. We wanted to understand what it would take for our projects to comply. We wanted to understand how to incorporate this proposal into our different building types. After the initial reach out, there was a working group put together of about 15, six from the private sector, mechanical engineers, developers, contractors, along with a, a nice working group from the city. Together, this working group put a, a good effort and a lot of time into it, and they came up with what has sort of been nicknamed the Seattle proposal. The Seattle model um, helps eliminate a lot of the cost. I believe you get all of the benefit, but you, it really helps reduce the cost of this. Um, at the, as the eight-page suggestion was typed and submitted forward, then we sort of lost communication and there was a little bit of silence. But we're back at this today, and with this amendment, I'm looking forward to uh, a strong finish to this. I'm optimistic that we can get something to work here. But it should not add fifteen dollars or $20,000 to the cost of housing. And whether it's affordable housing or market rate housing, there is no such thing as affordable housing. Um, Mercy Housing was at $577,000 per unit. 577,000, so we all have an obligation to do this the right way. Um, 
One interesting note, I believe that Seattle model may be a lot more beneficial to existing buildings than people think. Most buildings have some sort of ventilation system already in the hallways, and if we can borrow and tap into that, we might get uh, some mileage out of that as well. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Kegren. Is there any additional public comment on item number two? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Okay, uh, Department of Public Health. Well, thank you very much. And I, um, I um, want to assure you that I will continue to work with the groups that have spoken. And in fact, I've invited them here today. And our community presentations included both um, Dr. Tompkins' group and, and Ms. Harrison's group in, in doing the outreach for this. And it, it really sounds like we have a lot of unanimity about how to protect existing communities. I want to assure you that the Health Department's strategic plan has identified air quality index, source reduction, community protection as one of its leading health uh, indicators for improvement. And that's for all populations. Article 38 is for the scope of new building, and it is to update something that's already working and already exists. But um, it seems like there is perhaps some impetus for adding legislation separately that looks at our housing stock. I spend the majority of my time in dealing with the types of housing issues that people have mentioned here. My program is a children's environmental health program, and we do specific outreach to families enrolled in the food supplement program, WIC. And they have existed, uh, they live in all of the worst housing types throughout our city, residential hotels, public housing, private housing, uh, spaces that are not permitted to be housing, things that um, are very unsafe to live in. So. Um, I'd be very happy to pursue the types of um, issues that people here um, have addressed, and I, I believe that they are somewhat separate from Article 38. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, at this point, Supervisor Cohen, I believe you have amendments that you are offering to item number two? Yes, I believe that. And uh, you described them earlier. I described them already, and they've been circulated. Okay. So the amendments have been moved by Supervisor Kim, and we will take those amendments without objection. Thank you. And uh, Supervisor, would you like to make any closing comments I, or make I, a motion? Yes, I would like to just make some closing comments. I just wanted to acknowledge Mr. Eric Brooks. I think um, the language that he provided, I don't know if he's still in, in the room, but uh, it was very helpful, actually, and the uh, the concerns um, echoed by Dr. Thompson and Marie Harrison, it sounds um, like we've got still have some more work to do to deal with the existing uh, building. So we will continue our discussion. Uh, colleagues, thank you for your support on the amendment. I'd like to um, make a motion to accept the amendment. Oh, we've done that already, okay. and so we're going to make a motion to forward to the full board with, a rec with positive recommendations? Yes, I'd like to make a motion to full. So moved. Thank you. Okay, and we will take that. Uh, it's been moved to forward item two to the full board with positive recommendation. We'll take that motion without objection. Okay, uh, Madam Clerk, can you please call items four and five together? Okay. Item number four is an ordinance amending the public works code to require the installation of communication infrastructure and excavation projects. And item number five is a hearing on the vision and strategy of the city's fiber network. Okay, and uh, President Chu, who has joined us, is the lead author of item four, and I'm his co-sponsor. And President Chu called for the hearing uh, that's abiding in item number five. President Chu. Thank you, colleagues. I appreciate you hearing these two items today. And it's good to be here at Land Use talking about something other than short-term rentals. 
Last year, I introduced this Dig Once ordinance to help us build out our city's fiber optic network to save money and limit construction impacts on our residents, our neighborhoods, and traffic. What is a fiber optic network? Very simply, it's the backbone of the internet. Fiber is to the internet what power lines are to our electric grid. In recent years, San Francisco has installed 140 miles of fiber to serve the connectivity needs of our city. We've moved City Hall and hundreds of city facilities away from T1 lines leased from the private sector to our city's own cheaper fiber network, similar to how we use Hetch Hetchy generated electro hydroelectric power to keep the lights on in this building of City Hall and to keep Muni's electric trolleys running. Before I talk about the details of our legislation, I want to make a few broader points about internet connectivity. I asked for today's hearing on connectivity to be heard at the same time as our Dig Once ordinance because Dig Once as a policy will help us improve connectivity in our city to help us close our city's digital divide that still means that too many members of our low-income communities are not online. Quality broadband internet service is no longer an optional luxury. It's a necessity for the full participation in our economy and in our educational system by our citizens. In the 21st century, cities need access to affordable, high-speed broadband to compete economically, just as access to water, roads, and electricity were critical in the 20th century. Unfortunately, our country lags behind many other developed countries when it comes to the speed and affordability of broadband. Building out our city's fiber network could allow us to leverage it to improve broadband service for residents and businesses in the future. Already, our city's fiber network is helping us to provide free Wi-Fi in Market Street, at SFO, in public housing, and as of last week, in 32 of our city's parks. But we can do better, and we need the infrastructure in place to do it. We also could lease unused fiber capacity to the private sector. More than three years ago, I began, began conversations with what was then the Department of Technology and Information Services about leasing unused capacity. And now DT does that in a limited way, bringing in over $200,000 a year. We need to do more of this and reinvest the revenues in our city's fiber network. Now the heart of our ordinance, and I want to thank Supervisor Wiener for his co-sponsorship, says that if we are going to dig up any street to install fiber conduit, let's just dig once. Our Dig Once ordinance requires public and private excavators to install fiber conduit for our city when streets are already opened up for other projects, which will save the Department of Technology the money that would otherwise be needed to dig up the street again and to restore it. Our city, the Department of Technology, would pay for incremental costs including materials and labor required to install this additional conduit. One estimate found that we can save between 25 and 75 percent on conduit installations just with a Dig Once policy. Last week, I introduced a substitute version of our ordinance that DT has worked on for many months. The biggest change in the substitute ordinance is that the details of future installations through our Dig Once policy, such as technical specifications and incremental costs, would be determined through a rulemaking process similar to a DPW order. The Department of Technology, in assistance, uh, with the assistance of the Department of Public Works, will be working with all excavators, both public agencies as well as private telecoms, as well as utilities. 
Now, I do have some amendments that I would like to make today, and I've left some copies with our committee clerk. Some excavators had concerns that the ordinance didn't exclude small projects where DT is very unlikely to want to add additional con conduit. So I'm proposing an amendment today on page 6, addings line 21 to 23, to say that notice to DT is only required for proposed excavations longer than 900 linear feet, which is on average about three short city blocks. On page 8, lines 15 to 19, I'd like to propose language to clarify that the excavator will be installing the conduit. Also on page 8, line 21, I'd like to add a requirement that DT respond to the notice received by the excavator within seven days to avoid delaying any projects. On that same page, lines 24 to 25, I'd like to add explicit language to make it clear that DT will consult with Public Works in developing its requirements. On page 9, Lines 12 to 13, I'd like to clarify that DT has to verify its participation within seven days of receiving notice. I want to take a moment and thank all the city staffers who have worked with us on this from the Department of Technology, including former director Mark Tuitu, current acting director Miguel Gamino, and Brian Roberts, who walked through some of DT's work on conduit and fiber installation and connectivity more generally. So with that, I'd like to invite up Brian. Hello, Supervisors. I'm Brian Roberts, a policy analyst with the Department of Technology. And I just wanted to um, address both items today by uh, giving a little context of where we are with our overall connectivity strategy and how Dig Once fits into that. Um, and maybe even going beyond fiber strategy uh, to just point out that the um, that strategy is, is part and parcel of an overall uh, connectivity strategy, which currently uh, Department of Technology, along with the Mayor's Office of Civic Innovation, COIT, um, and also in consultation with Department of Public Works, the San Francisco PUC, uh, and the Planning Department, we're working on a new iteration of that policy. And that will appear uh, in a couple of forms before you. One is as part of the ICT plan, the uh, Information and Communications Technology Plan for the city, and then uh, in, in more depth in a uh, separate connectivity plan. And we'd be happy to come before you to explain um, those proposals as they develop. But um, just want to stress um, that Fiber is the key to any connectivity strategy because all communications converge in fiber. Um, convergence not only in the sense that voice, data, data communications are all being carried on an internet protocol network delivered at high speeds through fiber, but also as the backbone for uh, Wi-Fi networks um, for city uh, business as well as for the public as well as the channel for aggregated data from uh, the Internet of Things. Um, DIG once as a critical part of this strategy because over time it will create a pathway that reduces the cost of installing fiber that supports these services. Uh, the DIG once concept is very simple. In the course of street excavation, we place communications conduit to review, reduce future inconvenience and cost uh, when it comes time to put in fiber. Um, once the uh, conduit is in place, the cost of pulling fiber through the conduit uh, is much more reasonable. And just to explain what conduit is, it's a PVC pipe, usually two to four inches uh, in diameter. Uh, it can be subdivided into a number of uh, 
inner ducts or sleeves uh, through which individual cables of fiber can be pulled. Um, and in order to access the conduit, uh, we'll also need uh, pull boxes to be placed periodically. Um, and uh, that's how the conduit piece will work. I would also like to stress that this, um, this whole proposal uh, rests on an existing structure that DPW has created for coordinating uh, utility work through the uh, COLCOP committee. And they now have an online system for right-of-way management, which is uh, called Invista, which um, utilities, both municipal and uh, private, participate in. So that's a great platform for us to build on and coordinating uh, construction activities. But I think what this um, legislation does is uh, it makes sure that we don't miss any opportunities and creates a much more uh, rigorous application of criterion whether we'd um, participate in a trench or not and really encourage us to do so at every opportunity. Um, and I think as Supervisor Chu mentioned, we, uh, for our internal city needs, we're striving to provide a robust, resilient fiber network. Um, we currently have 140 miles of fiber. Um, this fiber connects office buildings, police stations, public radio, at safety radio sites. Uh, we're in the process of this year of uh, connecting all of our public health clinics and other public health facilities. Um, over time, we're working to connect all fire stations and libraries. Um, so we're continuing to expand this network, and so the additional conduit will be helpful for that. Also, it would help to provide diverse routes um, and greater, and thereby greater resiliency. Um, we also offer service to other, currently to other community anchor institutions. Um, and so far, it's been in the health and education uh, area, we provide dark fiber. And just to explain what dark fiber is, basically we install the fiber, the city, and the uh, third party puts the electronics on that fiber. And the advantage to educational and uh, medical institutions and other users that need super high bandwidth is the, um, the capacity is only really limited by the electronics that they put on it. Um, and we also, as Supervisor Chu pointed out, we use the fiber to support uh, public internet access at key public spaces, including Market Street, um, parks, and city buildings, like City Hall. Um, and part of our connectivity strategy is going to address how we use um, fiber to support projects designed to enhance equity by reducing uh, the digital divide. And that's going to be a key part of our proposal. And just to explain a little bit more about how this will work in practice, um, the, basically we're trying to get uh, efficiencies out of uh, sharing open trenches. Uh, and the degree of efficiency will depend on the type of trench. Um, if we're in adding communications conduit to a trench, including electric and other communications conduit, the cost will be relatively low. We know from recent experience that's about $9 to $10 a foot. If accommodating communications conduit requires a wider trench to be dug or separate parallel trench to be dug, some of the efficiency will be lost, um, especially if it 
triggers increased pavement restoration and so forth. But in critical areas, we'll still consider pursuing that. And again, over time, a continuous system of communications conduit will emerge that will mitigate the need for new construction. And the benefits of that investment will, again, accrue over a number of years as the conduit is put in place. We believe the proposed ordinance takes the correct approach by delegating the implementation details to the Executive Director of the Department of Technology. The flexibility will allow DT to ramp up gradually and take into account the unique circumstances of each type of trench, as I've spoken earlier about electrical and communications versus water and sewer. For the bulk of the excavation done by municipal utilities, we anticipate coordinating through the existing DPW process. And again, that online system that they have, which is very efficient and really a platform built for this kind of coordination. For private utilities not subject to the same NOI process, the legislation should really induce coordination prior to the permit application process. So just to touch on some of the issues that we'll be addressing through the rulemaking process, we'll be establishing a standard specifications for the communications conduit, including the material, the number of conduits, the frequency of the installation of pull boxes. We'll be creating a process for DT to opt out of projects and establishing the criteria for that, the cost of the particular project relative to budget constraints, the presence of sufficient alternative conduit that we may already have, or an alternative to underground construction, an aerial route on poles. The legislation now takes into account the 900-foot threshold for participation, but if we need to increase that, we'll take a look at that through the rulemaking process as well. The other issue we'll address is whether participation in a particular trench will create added risk given anticipated future maintenance needs. And again, that gets to the water and sewer co-location. And we'll be, again, harmonizing with the existing right-of-way management system administered by DPW. And finally, our proposal for producing the rules, this will be a new type of procedure for DT, but we'll meet with the public, including the telecommunications industry, prior to issuing draft standard specifications, and also, I should mention, including other municipal excavators as well in the Department of Public Works. We'll post those, publish them for 45 days, and during that time, we'll have another public meeting to discuss the outcome, the proposed rules in more detail, and that will all be prior to the executive director issuing his final rules for implementing the ordinance. Thank you. 
I actually have some questions for the Department of Technology, and this will actually probably implicate questions for the Department of Public Works as well. Uh, so thank you for that uh, presentation, and I'm I'm glad we're moving forward. Um, I think this is uh, long overdue, uh, and I'll I'll be honest. In my view, um, I don't think legislation should have been necessary um, to get us here. I think that we, you know, and it's been intensely frustrating uh, for me in the, in the last few years as we've been doing. This is very, very overdue infrastructure work between the, the water work and the sewer work and PG&E's gas work and the city's resurfacing work, and we're digging up street after street after street and then covering them up and not uh, not laying any of the conduit that we need to be uh, laying. And I'll just be totally blunt. Um, in my view, the Department of Technology should have been doing this all along and working, and DPW, should, the department should have been working together and just doing it, and I don't think it requires legislation, although apparently, um, you know, we need to do that to make sure that this actually uh, happens. And it's uh, frustrating to me that we, I don't even know how many miles and miles and miles of streets we've completely dug up and then re recovered, and I know there's, you know, not any conduit uh, underneath there. And so uh, uh, definitely better late uh, than ever, and I want to thank uh, President Chu for bringing this uh, forward, and I'm happy to co-sponsor it uh, with him. Um, I, I do have, um, uh, you know, and tied into this is my uh, frustration, which I know President Chu shares, that the amount of the city's dark fiber that's being leased out is de minimis. Um, I think that DT should be doing a lot more to get the dark fiber leased out. We have, you know, these resources that already exist, and it just doesn't seem like a lot uh, is happening. And when you look at the connectivity of this city and, and internet speeds here compared to other places, it's sort of embarrassing uh, that we're San Francisco and we're, you know, the heart of so much technological innovation, and yet our uh, internet infrastructure is just doesn't compare well to a lot of other uh, cities. So, um, you know, the the um, amendment. Uh, so I say all this in the context of my. I know that DT will be issuing a regulation. Uh, and DT also will have significant discretion about apparently increasing the 900 linear feet, and I'm going to have questions for DPW about the 900 linear feet. Anyway, DT will have discretion to increase that and also to issue a lot of regulations um, that could potentially limit the amount of conduit that actually gets laid. And I, uh, given past track record, I have a concern that DT may err on the side of minimizing what's going to be laid, whether it's for budget concerns or logistical or because other departments push back about this problem or that problem, and then the, the automatic response is, well, if any department objects or has any concern whatsoever, we just won't move forward with it. And to mm -hmm. me, we need to be laying this anywhere where it's physically possible if we're mm -hmm. tearing up our streets. And so can you talk to me about the concern that I just expressed, given the track record that we have, and explain maybe why I shouldn't be concerned or, or maybe why I should be concerned? And if I, if I should be concerned, what we should do to alleviate that concern? Well, I think one thing that's kind of overlooked in the uh, legislation, we haven't really talked about it, but I think it's really critical, especially with the other, your question about municipal excavators, is we, um, it's in section 2.2. 4.13, um, that really puts an obligation um, 
on them to consider communications infrastructure uh, during their planning, uh, as well as DPW. So I think there's kind of an overarching, uh, and that's a new addition um, to the uh, legislation, and I think it- It's uh, page five, line 19. Page five, uh, yeah. And I think it really um, makes it the obligation of all the departments to to include this. So that's kind of an overarching sense. And your your question about whether particular technical concerns will cause us to um, you know defer to other um, departments, I think part of our focus is going to be. Uh, to really challenge every every assertion that uh, there's a technical reason for not participating in the trench. And I've heard those. Um, we don't want to put it with, uh, co-locate with water, with sewer. If there's uh, an emergency, we'll dig up the fiber. We can't do it. It needs to be separate. That'll cause, you know, greater construction. We need to uh, repave a lane instead of just the uh, trench and so forth. They're, they're going to tell you that you have to replace the entire earth. I, I just know that, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to interject, we see in some of the pedestrian safety improvements we try to do, and I, these are all, uh, you know, I, I, I work with all of these departments. These are all, you know, I have a lot of respect for them. But we see with pedestrian safety improvements, and that I, I cannot even count the number of times where we learn that one department tells another department, if you want to do this, you're going to have to, the PUC does this all the time, you're going to have to pay to, to move the entire water infrastructure. They always tell DPW they have to do that, which makes it economically infeasible. Um, you're going to have um, pushback after every objection in the book that can be raised will be raised. And what we've learned, unfortunately, is that unless it gets escalated to a district supervisor's office to push back and get the project done, sometimes it doesn't get done at all. It just dies on the vine. And so I have a concern that, that given that, that DT has not been particularly proactive about this in the past, and that is what it is. I'm not trying to be critical. It's just sort of the, the, the way this issue has evolved. DT has not been particularly aggressive or proactive about it. Uh, uh, even though this conduit could have been laid all along. Um, and we're going to start hearing objections from other departments, and I can hear them already. Um, uh, will DT actually be aggressive in saying we're, we need to find a solution to get the conduit laid? And it's not enough when a, a mid-level person at PUC or DPW or whichever department says, oh, sorry, I see an obstacle, and so I object. I can tell you that we're aware that Possibility, and we're going to challenge every um, assertion that you know something can't be done, or that it will, their costs will be raised, um, and really vet every concern. I, I understand your point. I can't tell you that at this point that none of their consider that none of what these departments are going to be proposing are not valid concerns, um, but whether we can mitigate those concerns in the most efficient way possible. And, and they, are, they are often, I'm not saying they're frivolous concerns, but sometimes it, it's, it's, there's not enough of a can-do attitude to say we have a concern, how do we solve that concern? Um, and so the two points I'll make in that um, regard are, one, I really do think that the mayor's office has a huge role uh, uh, to play here. I see Mr. Nath is here. I mean, the, frankly, the mayor's office is, as we've, we did an ordinance around pedestrian safety projects, and we designated the 
mayor's office as essentially the nerve center sort of taskmaster in a way to get the departments together and to make sure that these blockages don't happen. And I would hope that the mayor's office will play a, a role here saying we need to get this done and we're going to find ways to do it. And I guess the second point would be I wonder if it would be um, – I'm sorry, uh, President Chair, I forget if there's um, – in terms of reporting requirement here, um, if there should be a periodic reporting requirement um, – where the Department um, of Technology would have to report, say, to the mayor and the Board of Supervisors, whether maybe on a quarterly basis, uh, here are all the um, – he, uh, basically, here are the opportunities we had, here are the opportunities we took, here are the opportunities we declined, and here are the opportunities that we took uh, but other departments objected. I think that's a great idea. It's not part of the legislation. I'd be happy to entertain an amendment to. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Is that, uh, Mr. Gibson, is that an adequate oral amendment, or is that uh, is that not good enough? Uh, Deputy City Attorney John Gibner, that's adequate. I've got the the gist of it. Um, quarterly, four times per fiscal year, basically. To um, quarterly to the mayor and to the board, for how what was presented to 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 DT, what they said no thanks, what they said yes to and did, and what they said yes to and had an objection from another department or a utility uh, in terms of that work. Sure, we can draft we'll that after the, after the meeting. Okay. And then, uh, I'm sorry, just one other uh, uh, thing. In terms of um, the 900 feet, um, I, I understand that if, you know, you have a small project, you may not want to, you know, always do this because there is a cost and a uh, you know, involved, and I get that. I just am wondering um, in terms of where, why the 900 feet as opposed to some other number of feet, where that, why that makes sense, and also to the Department of Public Works in terms of the, the range of road pro, uh, projects, what, what percentage of road projects are going to come in at 900, or under 900, do you think? And is there a possibility, how easy would it be uh, for an entity to piecemeal this by breaking up a, you know, a 2,000-foot project, road project, into four or 500-foot, just defining it that way and then not having to accept any conduit? So uh, if you, Mr. Sanguinetti, do you want to? Thank you very much for that. Thank you, Supervisors. Jerry Seguinetti, uh, Department of Public Works, uh, Street Use and Mapping. Um, thank you, Supervisor. Very valid questions, actually. And um, what I can tell you is, uh, with use, and as uh, Supervisor Chu and my colleague mentioned, um, the use of the uh, GIS-based Invista, what, what, what you guys formerly know as Invista, the GIS-based mapping tool that we have, is, in essence, our five-year planning tool. And so what we like to do is we like to forecast potential jobs out for the, for the next five years. They're broken down into three categories, large scale, medium scale, and small scale. And the 900 foot represents what we would consider the small scale. And as Supervisor Chu also mentioned, roughly that's pr approximately three small city blocks. In essence, what we would like to do from a cost perspective is have the Department of Technology join in, have a layer in Invista of what proposed work they'd like to see happen. And as that layer is folded over what's currently existing in the five-year plan, we can see where coordination can, can, can exist. On the short ribbons that we're talking about, those 900-foot deltas, uh, we'd like to see multiple uh, links 
put together, streamed together on maybe a larger project, it's cost, efi cost efficient for the Department of Technology. It also ends up terminating somewhere where there is connectivity rather than being a potentially a set of conduit that's sitting there null and void that is actually you know, um, um, paved over with no use at the current time and then need to be re-excavated to add that when another job comes through. So that's kind of like the perspective behind it. To give you numbers, if, if I may briefly, um, on the small scale, the total utility excavation permits that we had that were under, I'm sorry, greater than 1,000 feet is what we used. We, we, we pulled the data for 1,000 feet. Um, as, of, as of 2014, as of 10-6, there was 279. So relatively small in scale overall when you can consider that. Is over, over or under 1,000? We used 1,000 as the median, so, the, so these would be, these are under 1,000, so the 900 square foot ones that we were talking about. So 200 and? 279 through 10. Out of how many? Out of a total, well, I can give you perspective. I don't have out of a total number of projects because we didn't have time to pull that number, but I can give you a, a, a synopsis to, to give you some kind of scale. PG&E has 27,000 approved permits currently in and around the city in San Francisco. And so the, that 279, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, I assume that would include when they have to trench, you know, 10 feet because they have to repair one thing? Some would be, yes. So that, that's up to 900, right? So, so you're probably looking on average, let me pull another number for you, uh, approximately out of 279 out of 5,965 permits. 5%? Five, 5%. Like 5%. Okay. And um, do you have any more precise in terms of, obviously none of us is concerned with the real micro uh, ones, but, you know, how many of them are sort of in the five, six, seven, eight hundred? Uh, I could pull that data. I don't have that in front of me today. Uh, yeah, I, I'd be curious to know if we could get a more precise breakdown of the, the range. And also, um, how about the issue of the piecemealing question? If you could elaborate on so, that. So, yeah, so let's say uh, whichever entity is going to do uh, 2,000 feet worth mm -hmm. of road work, right. and, uh, and they decided they don't want to deal with uh, DT or deal with laying the conduit, and so they broke it up into four, or five, four separate 500-foot uh, uh, projects. Right. So, that, so that's when queries come in from, from, from the Department of Public Works as it relates to why would we be doing these in these phased approaches. We can understand a phased approach if, by chance, there's a, a – a specific disruption that we want to avoid, um, like for example, if we were doing something like that on Market Street because we don't want to impact traffic uh, as a result of. Other than that, we would always query as to why you would decide to break something up like that and discourage that from happening because, again, our, our position, uh, I'm actually responsible for mitigating moratorium cuts. That's something that falls into my wheelhouse. And so we probe um, when, when developers or contractors come in with th those type of um, requests, we actually need to understand the justification for those type of things, and we do query that. Okay. The, right now, the, it seems like I'm wondering if it would make sense just to make sure that the Department of Public Work, Works has the ability to prevent that kind of gaming. Um, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, but right. you, you, you never know. Right. Um, and, and, uh, I mean, one possibility is just reduce the 900 feet. I don't know if there's something magic about 900 feet. There's a significance that number, or if there's a way just to prevent the the piecemealing. Yeah, I, th I think we were just looking for a, a general consensus of where it's not 
based on connect connectivity, uh, working with DT is if it's going to be left open for an extended period of time, three small, short city blocks may not be uh, conducive, and so that we had to come up with a average or a standard, and that that seemed to be a, a fair equivalent. Okay. Again, I don't I don't know what the right uh, number is. Um, th this is uh, not going out as a committee report, so I I, I would like to before this comes to the full board. Uh, get the, that data, the data that I requested, and I'd also like to further understand what controls DPW would have in place to prevent piecemealing. Um, but it sounds like there could be um, intentional piecemealing that you would want, such as you mentioned Market Street, but I would hope if they were doing four, five, four separate 500-foot projects on Market Street, because maybe DPW has requested it that way to minimize disruption, that you wouldn't then say you don't have to lay conduit because technically each one is 500 feet, even though the whole thing is 2,000. No, and we wouldn't. And and and, and really, that's where where the partnering with DT comes in to, to comes to fruition. To say, are you guys prepared? Do you guys have the resources available to you to do this, or do you have another area of the city that is more conducive, where maybe there's a large ribbon project that is miles mm -hmm. long, and where you would like to defer that funding to? So that's where the, the coordination right. between and, and, and the conversation between departments, the partnering happens. Okay. So I'd like to maybe get that data sometime this week. Mm -hmm. um, and then just uh, um, two other um, questions. One is um, what happens if DT doesn't respond within seven days? What is the, perhaps the President, too, what's, what's the consequence if DT fails to respond for whatever reason? If, if um, I may. Yeah. So with using Invista, we used to have that, proce that process. Before we, we implemented the Invista uh, GIS-based tool, um, we relied on responses, and a non-response was considered there's no as-built or there's no desire to add in that particular area. What Invista does is it's proactive. So the notice of intent, the NOI process, actually moves up the, the chain of command within that agency itself when we don't hear a response by the, dead, by the prescribed time frame. So it would basically be escalated to your superior if you're sitting on something and not responding to it in time. Okay. Does that, uh, did that in answer? terms of this specific ordinance, because it requires DT to respond in seven days. So it requires DT to verify, um, and I'm not sure if you want to elaborate on that point. DT might. Thank you, Mr. Sanguinetti. Right. Part, uh, part of uh, the change in approach, I think, from last summer's version of this ordinance to the one uh, today is that um, the assumption is opt-in, so they would have to have done the design according to the specifications that we published. Um, and so because there was some concern uh, originally that the um, that, you know, utilities wouldn't know what they're getting and they would have to do design work around uh, a late arriving proposal from DT. So that was meant to uh, address that issue. So um, the verification is just a matter of saying, yes, proceed according to the specs that you've already included there. Um, and I think the, uh, but if we don't do that, the, um, the conduit won't be, included. Um, and so that would show up in our report to you every quarter that you've proposed, and you'd know that there was, um, you'd be able to ask. Okay. 
Right, and I would obviously that. prefer that it not be included. No, in well, I mean, they're, they're, that's a check on that. And so in terms of the, uh, I mean, presumably DT will want to either say yes or no on every one yes. and not just let the seven days right. lapse. And my concern would be, I know the department in this area, you know, may not be as resourced as it needs to be. And I would want to make sure we don't have situations where seven days is a pretty quick turnaround. Um, and I understand putting a time limit on because you have project sponsors that need to move forward and you can't just leave right. them hanging. Um, I, I would just also maybe in the next week um, discussion of seven days is the right amount of time because I just don't want to lose opportunities because for whatever reason, someone, someone's on vacation or, or, so, or wires get crossed and all of a sudden a quick seven days goes by right. and DT is a lot, you know, maybe it's a lengthy stretch, uh, maybe it's 10 blocks that are being done and we lost 10 blocks of conduit. So I, I think I'd like to just, you know, and again, all of these are just sort of, uh, this is really important legislation. I'm so happy it's coming forward. I just want to make that sure that on all these details, we're getting it exactly right. Right, okay. And we will write a response to you on that, that okay. issue. And the other thing that I uh, neglected to bring up in terms of what this legislation does differently than in the past, um, was really the incremental cost piece uh, that rather than uh, sharing the entire cost of a trench or piece of it, it will just be the cost that we add by adding the conduit. And so I think that'll greatly constrain the costs for us uh, in terms of participating in trenches. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Big that makes a lot of sense. And then my final question is for DT. Um, the amendment proposes giving, giving DT the power to ex, um, increase the 900 feet to a higher number. Um, would, it, would, is there a, a reason that DT would want to increase that to a higher number? Other than the overall uh, concern there of having um, a lot of stranded conduit that we require people to put in in a piecemeal fan fashion that we can't ever use as part of a um, coherent kind of system. Uh, that's the only concern, but um, if you'd prefer just to keep it at the 900 feet, that would be... Uh, okay. Not overly concerned with stranded conduit because maybe eventually at some point it gets connected up, but... I appreciate that explanation. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. I also want to just clarify some language. Um, if the determination by DT is that they are going to participate in the project, the, the assumption is that it is going to happen. So the language says if the determination is negative, the Department of Technology shall notify the applicant within seven days of issuance, but it doesn't have a similar uh, requirement on the flip side of that. So I just want to, to clarify that. Um, I also know there are a couple of other uh, city representatives here. I want to acknowledge Aaron Hagen from the PUC as well as Jay Nath, uh, our city's chief innovation officer. Do either of you have any comments that you'd like to make about this? Thank you, Aaron Hagen, Policy and Government Affairs Manager for the SFPUC. I want to acknowledge that this has been a very long conversation going on really for years at the city um, and that we have also participated in conversations with DT to try to move this along. Certainly there are challenges with co-locating infrastructure with water utilities, both water and sewer, and we've had discussions with DT and appreciate that the legislation actually does allow the departments to work together to figure out how best to advance the co-goals of the city. So thanks. 
I appreciate that. And I, I just need to, you know, say, uh, apropos of what I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I, I think very, very highly of the PUC. Um, the PUC has been presented some real challenges around other kinds of street projects and recently, I think, issued and had to rescind a really problematic uh, regulation that was going to pass along all sorts of costs to DPW and MTA and, make, you know, makes it very, very hard to do projects in the street because PUC was requiring movement of all sorts of expensive underground infrastructure. And, it, uh, again, again it, was, it wasn't enough of a let's get it done um, sort of uh, impetus. And it was, and I know that's being worked on now, um, but uh, do you think, can you, can you reassure me that the PUC is going to have uh, sort of a can-do attitude about let's get the conduit in in the street, that we need the conduit in the street, and the more conduit in the street, the better, and so fewer obstacles. Sure. I, I mean, even just in the time that I've been at the PUC over the last year and a half, almost two years, I've seen the progress progress, the, the conversation progress in the PUC. And so I know that I, I actually participated in conversations with Brian prior to this legislation um, moving forward uh, to try to figure out how to make that happen. And I've spoken with our senior leadership around it. And so I think that people do understand that um, there is a, a way forward that's a, that um, is a compromise and that there are some real concerns and logistical issues that have to be determined, but that we're definitely having those conversations and willing to notify and discuss and, um, you know, problem solve with DT. Okay, and I appreciate that. I would like to, between now and times comes to the board, probably get assurance directly from, from Mr. Kelly um, about that because, again, we have had some really significant challenges with the PUC around some of the pedestrian safety uh, improvements. I know people are trying and hopefully we'll work that out, but if, if past is prologue, I just get concerned. So I appreciate it, thank you. And let me ask, are there any other department representatives that wish to speak here? Let me also thank the uh, SFMTA as well as uh, the utilities and telecom communications that most frequently apply for excavation permits that provided uh, input here. And, and I also want to, let me, let me also uh, take a moment just to echo Supervisor Wiener's concerns about the uh, slowness of the process uh, as I think city departments know and others. Uh, I have been very frustrated with how long this process has taken, both this conversation around the legislation, but frankly uh, our city's approach to thinking about how we move forward with a fiber optic strategy and a dark fiber strategy. And, uh, uh, and, and I think many of you have heard me say this privately, but uh, I do think it behooves our city uh, if we are truly a 21st century city of technology and innovation to, to move this forward, to move it faster, and to uh, hopefully someday be a leader in this area, which we are not at currently. But hopefully with uh, the implementation of our Dig Once uh, policy, we will start moving in that direction. So with that, uh, Mr. Chair, uh, I think if we could public go to comments. public comment. Yep. Is there, I have one public comment card for uh, items, excuse me, two public comment cards for items four and five, actually one, uh, Eric Brooks for both. Mr. Brooks. Good afternoon again, Supervisors. Eric Brooks, San Francisco Green Party, Our City, and uh, specifically today making sure to represent the Public Net Coalition, which back in the mid-2000s, we helped push for the uh, fiber broadband study, citywide fiber broadband study that Tom Amiano commissioned. Uh, and we also uh, were the uh, coalition that stopped 
our entire Wi-Fi network in San Francisco from being owned by two corporations in partnership, uh, Google and Earthlink, uh, would have meant that we would have had a monopoly internet service in San Francisco. Uh, so uh, the thing that's, I want to thank the two of you supervisors for moving this forward. This is very important. Uh, the thing that I found most important in the language that I read is city-owned. Uh, it is absolutely vital that we do this just like city streets, that the fiber that we build out, that the conduit that we build out is owned and controlled by the city of San, Fr San Francisco, <clears throat> and that we build out a fiber broadband network to the entire city as quickly as possible. Any of you that don't know about it, and, and viewers that are watching this, should look up the Chattanooga GIG, G-I-G, Chattanooga GIG. Chattanooga has built out a fiber optic internet system to its entire, every residence and business in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they are getting over a gigabyte of access speed uh, on, that on, on that build out. The FCC and corporations are right now moving to get control of the internet. We need to build this out quickly and uh, get over the kind of hurdles that uh, Supervisor uh, Wiener was talking about so that we can get the economic boom that Chattanooga is experiencing right now to happen in San Francisco in the next few years. We can't wait for a lot of delay. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Brooks. Is there any additional comment, or is there any additional public comment on item four or, not, or item five? You can come forward if you want to make public comment. This is realized. I mean, all our central, San Francisco central, not onto Hong Kong central, but San Francisco central. I want a statesman at night to the law. I mean, uh, I mean, we have to, we face that term. It's not, it's all uh, executive, executive directors, see, uh, com uh, com congressional leaders, congressional uh, representative, legislatures for people of uh, uh, position, partition students, you know, uh, for missionary commissioning, uh, all together, see, above the surface of being undercover agent. Is there any additional public comment on items four or five? Seeing none, public comment is closed. President Chu. And with that, colleagues, as I mentioned, I had a number of uh, amendments uh, that I'd like to ask this committee to adopt, and then hopefully we can move it out uh, to the full board with recommendation for consideration next week. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, so in terms of the amendments that uh, uh, President Chu has offered, I'll, I'll support them, uh, subject to wanting just some more information from the departments over the next week to see if we need to uh, tweak uh, any of those uh, amendments. Uh, but uh, subject to that request, um, I will support them. Uh, today. So, colleagues, can we take those amendments without objection? Okay. And then also, I just want to clarify Supervisor Wiener had also made an additional amendment that I'm assuming yes. was captured in that. And then, that's right, I almost forgot about my own amendment. So, I made a, an oral amendment before, and can we take that amendment without objection? The amendment is adopted. And, uh, Mr. Gibner, these are not substantive amendments, correct? Correct. Okay. And so, uh, can I have a motion to forward uh, item? Four to the full board with positive recommendation and to file. I, or Actually, if we could keep that yeah. uh, hearing open at the call of the chair. Okay, and then to continue item five to the call of the chair. So okay, and we'll take that motion without objection. Madam Clerk, is there any additional business before the committee? Yes, you have two items left, seven and eight, that you were going to entertain to continue to October 27th. Oh, oh my. 
I almost forgot about that. Uh, so items, uh, can you, my apologies, Madam Clerk. Mm -hmm. uh, can you please call items seven and eight? Sure. Item number seven is an ordinance amending the planning code to amend the definition of formula retail and large-scale retail controls. And item number eight is an ordinance amending the planning code to expand the definition of formula retail controls. Okay. At the request of the author, um, we are going to entertain a motion to continue items seven and eight to October 27th. Uh, is there any public comment on items seven or eight, either on the items or the, or the request to continue? Seeing non-public comment is closed. Uh, Supervisor Cohn, could I have a motion to continue items 7 and 8 to October 27th? Yes, yes, you may. So moved. Okay. And we'll take that motion without objection. Madam Clerk, is there any additional business before the committee? There's no further business. We're adjourned. Thank you.